0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, Wondrium, Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: Every person has a story. Some are scary, some are gory. From the shadows of their past, the question begged is this life our last? Come and sit with us tonight, perhaps in the dark or by candlelight. Hear the answers to our request for tales, from tarot readings to haunted jails. They raise some questions we must face as we sail through the void of space. Stranger tales might be imagined, but we deem these astonishing legends.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forest Burgess.
1: The tarot is sacred. Chilean-French avant-garde filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky.
2: Join us tonight for the first of our three-week-in-a-row series, Your True Halloween Stories, Part 1.
3: back.
2: That we are, folks. A couple of quick notes before we get started tonight. The first one is we'd like to acknowledge all of our listeners who were impacted by Hurricanes Ian and Fiona, particularly in Florida, but everywhere. Ian actually made its way up here to me in uh, North Carolina, but by the time it got here, it was mostly just a little wind and a lot of rain.
1: As usual, we rely on CharityNavigator.org to make sure a charity can be trusted, so if you'd like to pick one out to make a donation to help out victims of Ian or Fiona, head charity navigator and they have some great choices right there in their homepage for ones that you can trust.
2: And for those of you who missed our special announcement last week in the main feed here, our last astonishing junk tour show was a celebration of 8 years of astonishing legends and we ran it live on video on YouTube for over 3 hours on Saturday, October
1: 8th. Woo, well it was a lot of fun. 9 amazing guests stopped by during that time including several podcasters you will no doubt know and of course Rich Adam too. Even though The Astonishing Junk Drawer is generally a Patreon-exclusive show, this one is available to the public at youtube.com slash astonishinglegends. So find and subscribe to us there. We'll be doing even more content there in 2023.
2: And finally, I would like to dedicate tonight's episode to my good friend Brad Stratton, who Mm. passed away suddenly at just 55 on September 21st. I worked with Brad for more than five years in New York City, where he was an outstanding music producer at the company I was editing TV commercials for, and we had recently reconnected as he had moved into podcasting a few years ago. In fact, we bumped into each other at Podcast Movement in Nashville last year. He was an amazingly talented musician, producer, dad, and just all-around great guy who leaves behind a beautiful family that are no doubt grappling with the pain of his loss. Brad, tonight's show is dedicated
1: to you, sir. But before we get started, Scott and I wanted to express our tremendous gratitude and appreciation to all the folks who have sent in well over 100 emails detailing their spookiest and most memorable stories. Quite frankly, we were blown away, not only by the chilling details of some of them, but also by the sheer volume of responses we've received and continue to receive. I mean, in the past, when we've done a call for listener stories, we were thankful to maybe, maybe get 20 emails, or, or 30, maybe 40 at the most, but this amount was as surprising as it was welcome. It's an embarrassment of terrifying riches. So we're still getting through them all, and I promise we'll read all of them. But please don't feel bad if your story wasn't chosen. There were just too many good ones to even spread out over three episodes, and it was gut-wrenching to have to narrow it down to the ones we'll record. I also promise we're collecting and logging all of them, and maybe one day we'll plan on doing a side project with them, like maybe for our YouTube channel or something. So they're all safely kept in our very own Archive 81 or Warehouse 13 or that warehouse at the end of Raiders. But more (laughs) importantly, I wanted to express something to the folks that have very generously taken the time to write out and send us their submission. Even if your story is second or third hand or some passed-down family legend, or, or maybe there wasn't much drama or action. No matter what went on or what it was about, it obviously made enough of an impact on you that you'll likely remember it for the rest of your lives, a status reserved for the most special events that can happen to us. Some folks may never be able to forget the trauma they endured, no matter how much they want to. And some experiencers have had their beliefs and worldviews forever rocked. But no matter the intensity of the tale, merely a curiosity or truly horrifying, all these stories are profound in their own way, even if it's just to the person that bore witness to them. One of the main reasons we started this podcast is because we like hearing these stories and sharing what we can. We value the connection that is made when one is given the benefit of the doubt. This exchange of intimate and personal anecdotes like these within our club of like minded folks, without judgment or name calling, without eye rolling and hubristic debunking, without snickering unless we're laughing with you, given and received with a sense of kind hearted acceptance and a fellowship of respect. Well, it's one of the best things about this show and one of the best things a community like this can do. So, for those that have beheld, you're not alone in knowing there is much more mystery and wonder to this world than most will ever believe or accept wow that was
2: that was really well said, man
1: oh wait hold on, wait, wait are you?
2: no i'm I'm being serious are we on the mic uh, are we still recording kind of made me choke up a little Uh, it's it's nice
1: this is it's not an easy thing to do a lot of these stories that we start off with it's people telling us like i've never told the story before or i'm afraid to tell anybody outside of our family or i did tell it to my family and they laugh at me people think am i crazy you're not crazy If you uh, just experience something like this, it's not out of the realm of possibility, at least to people who know. It becomes a shared thing, and those who have before, or even just ones who give them the benefit of the doubt, as I said, it kind of makes a bond that is special, and no one else who doesn't believe or has experienced yet will ever know what that's like.
2: I couldn't agree more. Well, let's get down to it then. This first story tonight comes to us from Jeff Wade, a listener in Boise, Idaho, Jeff is a corrections officer, and I'd like to point out, especially for you, Jeff, that yes, we know you work in the prison system, not a jail, as referenced in aforementioned opening poem tonight. But jail rhymed better, so since I'm 9,000 steps below Dr. Seuss, jail it was.
1: He does not like them, Jeff, he is. <laughs> no, to all the hardworking corrections folks out there who deliver justice and keep us all safe, thank you, because it's not just apparently the real world dangerous things that are associated with your job, there's a little extra sometimes that just adds to the weirdness. Well, it's time to get spooky. So Sarah, let's roll The Haunted Prison.
2: So we'd like to welcome Jeff Wade to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. Why don't you start (laughs) off by introducing yourself to our listeners a little bit, tell them a little bit about yourself and your background, and then maybe let's talk about how you came across Astonishing Legends and what made you decide to send something in to us.
3: My name is Jeff Wade. I'm from Southern Idaho, uh, the Boise area. I am the co-owner of a company called Ida History. We do some uh, macabre walking tours. We do a lot of cool blog posts about you know crazy events that happen in Idaho's history. Uh, so we do you know basically anything, everything Idaho history. We also do like family histories and research projects for people. Great gifts, by the way. <laughs> but yeah, I've been listening to Astonishing Legends for four or five years now. I was listening to Thinking Sideways. You know those guys? Sure. And, uh, somehow I think maybe in their Facebook group, someone had mentioned Astonishing Legends. So I, I jumped over and tried you guys out and, uh, been here ever since.
2: Oh, that's great. Well, thanks for sticking with us. It's always nice to hear people have been listening a long time, especially when, you know, I don't look at the negative stuff anymore, but Forrest will check in on that stuff. And then <laughs> I'll just be like, oh, I'm glad I didn't look at it. But, uh,
3: <laughs> you know, I, I like to go on like Amazon and read like uh, the reviews on Stephen King books, like the yeah. zero stars, and that uh, yeah. boost my own confidence.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great plan. Yeah. So, what's a little bit about your background? Tell our listeners what you do for a living.
3: So, for a living, I uh, am a correctional officer. I have worked in that job since I was well. My twentieth birthday was my first day walking into a prison. So you can imagine that was pretty, uh pretty harrowing for a nineteen, twenty-year-old. So I've been doing that for fifteen years now, and uh, it's been a wild ride. Worked at five different prisons, all different custody levels, all the way from, you know, walking death row down to like community custody guys that are just preparing to get out of prison. So I guess almost everything there is to see in prison.
2: Do you find yourself in personal danger frequently or I mean, people just, I think, probably assume that it's a physically demanding job or are you going to get shanked? What's happening there with (laughs) all that?
3: Yeah, it definitely can be dangerous and we're always prepared for that possibility mostly the reality is just a lot of sitting around and uh, watching and, and waiting for something to happen. So it can be quite boring, but it can be exciting and the excitement lasts for 30 seconds and you have, you know, four hours worth of paperwork to do (laughs) afterward.
2: Right. Right. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you? Any kind of injuries or?
3: I haven't been injured on the job. Thank goodness. Uh, There was one fight where there were two gang members going after a member of the opposite gang with a broom handle and the inmate Jander had just mopped the floor in the foyer of the unit. And so one of my coworkers goes running out there, slips on the wet floor, and then I go running after him and I slip on the floor. So it was a bit like a Keystone Cops <laughs> there for a minute. <laughs> it's kind of goofy, oh, right. but. Right. And, you know, I've had deaths and attempted hangings and people cut themselves all up with razor blades. And oh, wow. I mean, this is still kind of a family show, so I can't go too far into yeah, it. But yeah, yeah, it's some wild stuff.
2: So you must, you still enjoy it as a career.
3: You know, it's a paycheck. I really can't see myself doing anything else at this point. So what made you
2: decide to send something into us when we asked for these Halloween stories?
3: So, you know, I was out running when I heard that, uh, that call out for Halloween stories and it just it just hit me right away. I'm like, I've got some pretty unique stories. You know, we hear a lot of stories from old shut down prisons of hauntings, you know, that I've never heard at least not among my, you know, peers at my my job of ghost stories from actual running current prisons. So I thought maybe these stories were a little more unique than what you might hear.
2: Well, they jumped out at us. And that was the first thing that we thought when we read them was you don't hear a lot about an active prison. And also your stories are, are, they're spooky. There's some strangeness to them. And that idea that if you're interacting with a ghost or something, it's a little bit more scary when it might be the ghost of a person who was somewhat malevolent or violent in in life. Which there's obviously a better chance of that in prison than there is uh, at the old saloon in an old West Town or something. Well, no, that's probably not a good comparison. But <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. It's you know, there's all sorts of people. There's people who, you know, have murdered people all the way down to people who bounced a check, went to prison. So you have like the whole gamut of the human experience within prisons. They're like these small little cities, right? Yeah. And you have like a population, you have, you know, chow hall. It's like a restaurant. You have you know, chapel visiting. So you have everything that they need. So this is where they're living their lives. So it's like a concentrated place where people come to. And there's a lot of people, a lot of a lot of anguish, like you said. It's a unique place.
2: Yeah. Well, if I'm running into a ghost in a prison, I'm going to prefer the
3: check bouncer, I think.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get on to your stories.
3: Yeah, definitely. ISCI or um, Idaho State Correctional Institution or The Yard, as I'll refer to it, it's about 50 years old. Uh, was kind of surprising that, you know, there's so much paranormal activity there being so young, I guess you could say. So, yeah, it's a medium custody facility. Uh, like I said, it started construction in the early 60s because they knew that they would have to replace the old Idaho penitentiary. So they actually used inmate labor from the old pen and they brought inmates out for a, they call it like a rehabilitation program. So they helped build their own prison. So there were a couple of riots at the old pen. They burned down the uh, chow hall and some of the other buildings. And that forced the yard or ICI to open earlier than they wanted it to. Early on in the yard's history, conditions weren't great. So there was a lack of health care, lack of programming. The housing units were overcrowded. There were insufficient bathroom facilities. The housing units, they were pretty much being run by the inmates who lived there. The correctional officers, like I've read that they've never stepped on the tier sometimes. Of course, uh, inmates were always getting beat up, injured, violent sexual assaults were pretty common. So, by the time I walked onto the yard, the prison was pretty much being operated a lot more safely than it had been in the last few decades. Uh, there had been several lawsuits. There was a federal court that had oversight over the prison for a while. Uh, so, the state made a lot of changes. So, over the years, Like I was talking about earlier, I dealt with a lot of brutal fights, medical emergencies, had to cut down some inmates who were attempting to hang themselves. So the training that I received from the state of Idaho helped prepare me for some of that stuff. But some of the other things that I experienced there, you know, I can't write in an official report. So
1: I guess that's why I'm talking to you guys today. (laughs) What would happen if you did? I would probably get sent home. <laughs> <laughs> like most, every other uh, authoritative uh, body, you know, like with pilots or or the military, but we're starting to see a little bit of change with that. But yeah, it, it totally understandable.
3: Yeah, so correctional officers were a lot like police officers and military. I mean, it's a called a paramilitary organization. So we have, you know, sergeants, lieutenants, captains, stuff like that. So it's very like professional type organization. So, you know, talking about this stuff officially probably wouldn't be great, but, you know, we always talk about this stuff like, you know, there's a lot of downtime working in prison. So we always, you know, tell each other ghost stories. And honestly, it becomes part of the folklore of a prison. And, you know, that's kind of what we've experienced. So my first paranormal experience, I had been working there almost a decade. And I was working in a segregation unit. The official designation of the unit is called the Unit Eight the all the housing units at the yard are numbered so they started at 7 and they worked their way up to 16 and i have theories about why they started at 7 but uh you know it's one of those things i'm still looking into trying to figure out but this housing unit it's shaped like a giant t basically so upside down t if you think about walking in their front door at the top of the t and then there's three tiers that are stretched out on the legs of those of that t they're labeled a tier, B tier, and C tier. And in the middle there's a control center in that unit. So one night we had all of our work done. We're sitting there in the control center just talking. There was three of us shooting the breeze and there's these big glass windows in this control center that look out onto each tier. And you can see not only there's cameras, but you can also see down those tiers from that control center. And There was nobody else on the tiers at the time, so it was just the three of us in the unit. We were all three in that control center, but we start hearing this knocking on the glass from the direction of B tier. And, you know, of course, we all jumped up and we're looking around trying to figure out if someone had somehow snuck into the unit. Of course, there was no one else in there. And plus, we have to do uh, tier checks in those units every 30 minutes. So we're walking those tiers every half an hour and, you know, we would have known if someone else was in that unit. So V tier, that's where all the the activity seems to happen in that unit. I've also heard rumors where people will be standing, there's a, a set of showers at the front of the tier. When I say tier, I'm talking about a long straight hallway and there's cell doors on either side of the tier. It's not like a stacked one, like multiple stories like you see in the movies, it's just one long hallway. And so there's a set of showers at the front of the tier. And I've heard that if you stand there at night, you can hear whispering or you can hear like a conversation between two disembodied voices coming out of that shower area. Of course, there's no one, no inmates out of their cells during this time. There's nothing going on. So it's, I haven't experienced that one in person, but I always wanted to. A few months after the, the window knocking incident, I was actually feeding dinner on that tier. So how that looks is uh, you have a, a cart that holds all the dinner trays in it and you have a inmate janitor and he pulls the tray out of the cart, hands it to the officer. The officer unlocks the utility port on the cell and hands that meal to the inmate in the side of the cell, close the utility port, lock it up and go down the next one. So we're about halfway down the tier and I'm waiting for my, the inmate janitor to pull out those trays from the cart so I could go to the next cell and I'm standing in between two cell doors. And between the cell doors, all there is is a flat, it's a pipe chase door. So if there's any plumbing issues and stuff, you can open that door and get in there, but there's no exposed handle or anything on that door. So I'm standing in front of this door, this pipe chase door, and I'm watching my inmate janitor pull out the trays from the cart. And all of a sudden I feel a hand on my back and then it pulls up on the back of my duty belt. We wear these these big heavy duty belts with our handcuffs. and radio and pepper spray and all that so this hand grabs my belt and just yanks up like it's trying to give me a wedgie (laughs) almost (laughs) you know my first instinct was that maybe an inmate had gotten out of a cell and he's attacking me or i'd left one of those utility ports open because they'll they've been known to reach out and try to grab officers through them if you don't close them right but i turn around of course i'm not standing near enough to a cell to for that to even happen but i was just standing there and i wasn't moving at the time so I, i Checked and I was far enough away from the wall that I wouldn't have been uh, snagged on anything on the wall. There's nothing there to even snag me. So that was the first time I ever been touched by anything I couldn't see. So
1: it's pretty paranoid after that one. Did the inmate janitor that working with you? Did he notice anything? Because he's he's got to be close by, but he's not behind you. So yeah, he was standing to the right of me, and he was probably a good
3: four or five feet away from me. And there's a that cart that has the trays in it in between us there's another officer on the tier but he is further down the tier as well uh not even gonna hit we had been talking which was the kind of the surprising thing so i knew exactly where he was and we were just kind of having our vital conversation as we were working and yeah so about a year after that incident in segregation where i was grabbed by the back of the belt i was working in a general population unit and this unit's called unit 9 So I was walking, again, this is on B tier. I don't know if this is a coincidence or if there's something about B tier. But So at the end of the night, what we would do is when the inmates locked down for the night, we would go through and there are these big, heavy, rolling cell doors. These were original to the prison, so they're 50 years old. We like to go through and hand check them to make sure that they've actually closed. Because they have the switches, but a lot of times they didn't close all the way, so we would make sure. Uh, So I'm going down the tier and I'm closing, make sure all the doors are closed, go back down to the end and then I'm coming back. I'm almost to the end of the tier and I look down toward the office and there's a janitor closet right there. Just as I, I look up, I see someone walk into that janitor closet. So as I'm walking back toward that closet, I can see that closet, it's right in front of me. So I thought one of my coworkers that I was working with at the time He would go in and make sure all the janitor tools, the mop handles, the mop buckets, stuff like that, were all in the closets where they're supposed to be, and then we would secure them for the night. So I thought he was in that closet, so when I come in and I, I look around into that closet, there's nobody in there. So it was quite a startle. Uh, And then in fact, I looked down to the tier across from me and I could see my coworker down there and there's only the two of us in the unit. All the inmates were locked down for the night. So there was no other movement. There was nothing going on in the unit at the time. This haunting, and I've heard several other officers talk about uh, seeing things on this tier. One of the things I didn't put in my emails, I've heard that officers will be walking down the tier at night and they'll shine their flashlights into a cell. But it's almost like, the light doesn't penetrate into that cell so it's like this just dark cloudy mist that just swallows up all the light. I never experienced that one but this tier actually does have some history behind it. Back in 1988 there was a small riot in this unit and it didn't spread beyond the unit so it was just the group of inmates that were on that tier and they somehow they got drunk on prison-made alcohol. We call it squawky in Idaho, other states call it pruno. So they got drunk and they uh I guess they had tables in the day rooms that weren't bolted down at the time, and they were able to take one of those tables or a chair or something and break a hole through the cell wall. And then they took a sharpened mop handle and they stabbed the inmate that was in that cell to death. The guy who was stabbed to death in that cell was a guy named Richard Holmes, and he was in prison for... His role in a murder that had happened, he actually had pled guilty to that murder, but he had two accomplices. So, his accomplices felt that he ratted them out. So, I guess, you know, when they say prison, uh, snitches get stitches, that's, you know, <laughs> actually what happens in prison sometimes. But I guess outside the unit, there were tactical teams standing by when this happened. And they could hear him as they were waiting for their orders to go in. They could hear him being stabbed to death. He was screaming. And so that's a pretty terrible event that happened.
2: And that was B-tier?
3: That was B-tier, yep. And so where his cell was, where he was stabbed, was right across the hall from that janitor closet where I saw the, the figure walk into. During
2: the riot, were the prisoners ever out of the cell besides breaking the wall through? Were they ever walking free outside their cells?
3: Yeah, during the riot, they were so they actually broke in from the the hallway into the cell.
2: Oh, from the hallway into the cell. So they were out and about, which means yeah. in theory, you might have seen an echo of free roaming prisoner in theory from the riot event. Maybe.
3: Yeah, I'm not going to say for sure that it was uh, Mr. Richard Holmes that I saw. Yeah, I kind of believe more in the our surroundings record energy and the replay. I, I subscribe more to that theory than the that there's actual conscious being. Ghost beings, spirit beings uh, among us.
2: Yeah, it's more this is more of an echo, you think, kind of. I feel like
3: this one was. Yeah.
2: I had read a little bit about this when you sent the story in and I read that the murder was of an informant that he had participated in that murder of the informant. And, that, and then, as you said, he snitched on the other two guys. But then the other thing that it had said was that he was stabbed to death by a sharpened broom handle.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Which. uh might come from a janitor closet. I don't know. That's just, I'm just speculating on <laughs> <laughs> yes. why, how that exactly. might all connect. So anyway, but I mean, they would have had to have time to sharpen it, I guess. So they wouldn't have just gotten it before then.
3: Well, if you just break a broom handle, it's usually pretty sharp, right?
2: Yeah. Maybe they went in there, broke it, and then went to town on Mr. Holmes. Anyway, interesting.
3: Somehow they, my experiences get even more interesting from there. we talk about unit 14. Unit 14 is a little different than the other two units I just described. So you walk into unit 14 and there's this large, uh there's like a courtyard area and then there's this large rolling door. You walk in and then to your right, there's a staff office and then there's another office to the left and then a staff bathroom. And then the hallway kind of tees off and there's four large tiers and it's all open dorm style tiers in there. I think there's almost 200 inmates that live in just this one housing unit. The interesting thing about unit 14 is that uh the paranormal activity there seems to focus on the staff areas because you have these staff offices that you know the inmates come in while we're in there, but they don't come in when we're not. So these are you know where we take our breaks, eat our eat our lunches, uh, there's refrigerators in there, lockers, stuff like that. So one day I was sitting at the desk and I was sitting there with one of my coworkers and there were these three ring binders sitting on the desk about maybe a foot and a half away from my coworker, and we were just sitting there talking and one of these three ring binders flew out off of the desk and actually hit her on the arm and then fell down to the floor to the desk. So that was kind of the first weird thing I felt in that unit You saw in that unit. I've never seen anything fly by itself before so that was obviously pretty impressive but late one night I was sitting there at the desk and behind me was this small table that had like a coffee pot and some other stuff on it and I had my water bottle sitting there and all of a sudden I was just sitting there on the computer and it the water bottle flew off and hit the floor a few feet in front of me so it had actually gone from behind me to in front of me like four or five feet what else the refrigerator door it would actually open and close on its own I don't know if that's maybe paranormal or bad hinges or something I don't know probably the craziest thing that happened though in that unit aside from the flying binder uh, so my co-worker that actually had been hit by that binder she was working up in the control center one day so to get to the control center you have to walk up a flight of stairs and then there's large windows you can see out on the tiers but on the other side of the control center there's a big window that looks out onto the rest of the yard about maybe 50 or so yards away from the front of that unit there is a guard tower right in the middle of the yard and so this co-worker she was in this control center by herself and she was talking on the phone with the officer in the tower the officer in the towers he looks at the unit and he says to the officer working the control center he's like hey who's that up there in that control center with you and she says there's no one up here i'm all alone and he says no i can see someone looking out that window at me and so she you know slowly turns around and looks and you know there's no one standing there and he says oh like that person is not there like they stepped away from the window when i say step away like somewhere between the time she turned around and looked this figure actually he saw the control center officer stepped away because you can see if someone's standing right up next to the window it's kind of partially tinted so if you can see someone standing right there but as soon as you step away you know you can't see them anymore so that was crazy. The other, oh, I forgot about this one. Uh, Scott, you have that picture of the the papers, right? Yes, we're going to share that. So one morning, I get a text message from one of my coworkers who was working the graveyard shift there. She says she was sitting in the, the staff office again, and she was doing some paperwork. And she got up to go to the restroom. So. To do that, you have to, you know, get up, go out the office. You close the office door behind you all the time. Like, it's ingrained in our, our brains. I always secure that behind us, no matter if it's grave guards and there's not supposed to be any other inmates moving around. Because if you don't secure a door, you know, the worst that could happen is a riot. The best that can happen is someone, one of your coworkers, comes in and screws with your stuff. She was the only one that had keys to that office, so keep that in mind. So she goes to the bathroom, she comes back, unlocks the door, opens it up, and she comes back to her desk to find the paperwork she was working on was stacked, but it was on its side, sitting straight up. I don't know if I'm describing that very well, but yeah, so it was like almost impossible. Like, I don't even know if I could take a stack of papers and (laughs) put that up like it's shown in the picture there.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, when people see this, it's hard to imagine, and it's the craziest thing. So I think people have to imagine this is a stack, let's say, of a maybe 40 sheets. And it's loose. There's no binding on it. It's not in a binder. These are a a stack of loose papers, neatly squared off, and it's standing on the long edge straight up. And as you said, there's a little bit of a curve to it. So it's not completely defying physics or gravity is that it's there's a little bit of a curve to the paper, but not very much. It's close to defying. It's as close as you could probably stand it. Like I said, Here's the thing that struck me when you when you see this photo. The pages would have to be maybe just brand new right out of the ream of paper. You know, you open up uh, something from Office Depot and they're kind of still sticky together. You haven't flipped through them because anything loose that you'd gone through before, these would just fall over. I, you just, It's one of those things where you look at it, it's like, how is that happening? That's not how physics usually works, but there's a little bit of curve to it. So if anybody could do that, the pages would have to be, you know, I think brand new where they're a little stuck together and you'd have to sit there for maybe like five minutes to get this thing to to actually sit on edge on its long side with just a tiny bit of a curve to keep it upright. It's pretty amazing. So is that what the case was, Jeff, where uh, these were loose papers she was dealing with that uh, had printing on them or were they just blank?
3: Yeah, they look like... Um maybe unit rosters or something to me, like okay. she had just printed them out and then yeah. was uh, going through and highlighting certain names on it.
2: Yeah, I right. can see the highlighting. And I just, I zoomed in on it. I don't see a paperclip or staples or anything.
3: And I tried doing this myself to see if I could stack papers this way. And I'm doing it nothing. right now. Scott's uh, doing it. I'm gonna yeah. try right now.
2: I just got these out of a binder. Now this is three hole punch. That's the only thing that's different. This paper is okay. relatively new. I just printed this. These are instructions for a GoPro camera. I printed this about a week ago been in a three-wing binder i can't even it's not even remotely interested in standing up on its own not even i can't even i can't manipulate it into doing what it's doing in this picture
1: well that's what i was saying is like maybe if you if you it's just amazing. took out about 30 40 sheets of paper and you know right from the ream where it's you know from the factory it's pressed down so there's a little bit of tack to it with each sheet maybe you could get it to do that after you know okay oh, okay maybe 30 seconds a minute yeah it it doesn't seem uh, very easy to do. They're just going to fall over. So
2: Now that, okay, see, I'm doing a little bit, but I had to bend it really hard in the middle, and there is no crease of any kind on this stack, and some of them fell down. Yeah, it takes skill. It's like when you were a kid in school when you tried to balance the, uh, the chair in the back of the classroom while the teacher wasn't looking. It was really hard to do, but uh. <laughs> Anyway.
0: I'm Paul Strauch, and when I'm not on my sailing yacht searching for the Loch Ness Monster, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
1: What did your co-worker do, and and was that the same one who had the binder hit her arm? Uh, no, it was a different co-worker, but she freaked out. Uh, <laughs> you know, working graves,
3: she had the opportunity to see a lot of things. Uh, supposedly, she yeah. saw a staff member walking through the courtyard of the unit. And, you know, there's a big, heavy door that only the control center officer can operate. And somehow that staff member was now inside the unit, even though that door was closed. And then after that, they didn't see this person, the staff member anymore. And the weird thing, like I thought about that story was that we had switched our uniforms from the old kind of police officer style uniforms, the polyester to the newer like khaki pants and polo shirts. We had switched those like maybe a year before this happened in that, vision of a of a staff member like i said was wearing those newer uniforms not the old uniforms like you would expect mm. maybe you know so i don't know what to make of that one
1: interesting that's almost like a random doppelganger like i said it's something whatever it's choosing to appear as or it's just an a, an echo of sorts it is in the newer uniform not the ghost of some old guard that worked there years ago who would have been you'd think wearing the uh, old uniform so that's pretty interesting but but definitely Everyone was accounted for. It was just an image of uh, of a more current guard walking through.
3: I guess sometimes they portray themselves as we want to see them, right? Mm.
2: In terms of it being a staff member, was the uniform the only recognizable thing, or did they see someone that looked familiar to them?
3: Yeah, from the angle that you're looking at in the distance, it's hard to tell who's who, unless you can recognize right. how they walk or something like that, which you know, you get to sure. know how people walk working with them this closely for, for so long. But yeah, they said they right. didn't know who it was. Um, and we'd have uh, staff members from other facilities because now you have not only have the yard, but you have three other facilities right there that have been built uh, after the yard. And so you'd have other officers from other facilities come work overtime and help out when staffing is low and stuff like that. So you didn't always recognize everyone right off.
1: Were there any of the apparitions that people saw? Did anybody there as part of the lore have any idea of, of a name or somebody other than Richard Holmes, somebody who would be connected to something? It's like the one of the old offices I worked at. There would always been very small things happening, and then, uh, you know, nobody talks about it. I'd had a, a few weird things, but nothing major, and you kind of you pass that off. And then I started talking to the facility manager, the the building manager. And he said, like, oh, yeah, I call that George. Whoever that is, like, uh, I just, I, for whatever reason that name came into me, I just call him George. And then, uh, you know, the night guard will hear the, uh, the push bar rattle, uh, the conference room door. And it's like, of course, there's nobody in there. The janitorial staff, they had a lot of people who quit. I, and I didn't know any about this, anything about this. I mean, I worked there maybe 10 years or more off and on. And the vacuum would stop and they go and the, the plug has been taken out. And so he said, well, why'd you call him George? He said, well, you know, there was a guy here who uh, he worked her for a while and he had a heart attack, not there, I think, but he, uh, you know, was a hardworking guy, He'd always be there late. And he said that wasn't his name, but for whatever reason, it's just, I got this feeling this guy's named George. Is there anybody though, in the uh, poltergeist activity or the apparitions that people have uh, seen there, any connection to a, a living person through history or just gut feeling?
3: Okay, so I've heard some stories where um, officers have connected a certain cell and something weird that's happened in to cell to a certain mm-hmm. inmate who maybe passed away in that cell. So yeah, I've heard stuff like that. More to like naming something like George, and this last unit, unit thirteen, it was it's one of the newer units. It was built in the the nineties. But the entity that's in that unit, one of my coworkers nicknamed him Solomon. And I don't know why he picked Solomon, but it was like George. He just had a gut feeling that maybe it was his name is you know, that it was its name. Hmm. To that, there's this kind of weird phenomenon is when you you name something, it gives it power, right? So after Solomon got his name, or we started calling him Solomon, it seemed like the activity in this unit actually picked up and, and got more intense.
2: And so what, what is your story about, this is your Unit 13 story, right?
3: Yeah, so Unit 13, um, it's kind of, this, it's this weird unit. You walk into the unit and it's like this foyer area and then there's uh, tiers off to your left and right. And there's like eight tiers. And then uh, in the foyer area, there's a little control center. So you walk in the control center and then right in front of you, there's a spiral staircase that goes down to the basement. So, you know, spiral staircases are weird anywhere. <laughs> (laughs) when you're walking up and down them but i've heard several stories Uh, i had one of my inmate janitors was standing in the door of that control center talking to the officer and he could see out of his peripheral vision down into the basement area and he swears that he saw someone walk by down there now this is the type of basement you don't go down to unless you absolutely have to it's dark it's dank it's musty there's always water leaking down there uh I was always half afraid I was going to get electrocuted, stepping into a water puddle or something down there. But of course, you know, they went down and looked. There was no one down in there. And I've heard that story a couple times where people have seen something down there. And when I was working in there, I could always hear footsteps walking up and down the stairs behind me. And that was was really a heart stopper every time because it sounded like there was someone else in there with me. And I would go, I'd sit alone in this control center, except for when I went to do tier checks. There's no one else that would come in his unit for hours at a time. So, you know, hearing those footsteps was always chilling. hear kind of snippets of voices once in a while, too. As far as that goes, I couldn't tell if that was actually something that I was hearing, or maybe, you know, inmates were getting a little loud out on the tier, stuff like that. So the voices, I'm not really convinced was anything special or paranormal. I just... You know, it's was a kind of a little weird when you're sitting there by yourself, you start hearing voices. So probably the strangest thing that happened to me in this unit and I was sitting in this little control center and the doors are operated by switches in this unit's older kind of control panel. So we're just sitting there talking and all of a sudden these switches start switching by themselves so you could hear the doors to all the tiers popping by themselves. You hear the the pop of the lock, as you know, the electronic locks as you hit the switch. And so it was click, 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 click for, you know, maybe 20, 25 seconds, something like that. There's eight doors plus a front door. So there's nine different switches that were going by themselves all at once. You have to physically move these switches. It's not like an electronic touchscreen or anything like that. So you have to
1: flick them up and down to operate these doors are these rocker type switches you know like the plastic rocking back and forth or are they more towards uh, something like a the metal post the old switches you see on a uh, on electrical equipment where they have to physically move though
3: so they're the kind of the rocker switches so you flick it down or up depending on which side and then mm-hmm. it would go back into place by itself so it was on a spring you know
2: that's an analog switch there's no digital components to the switch yeah that has to be physically switched
1: are you actually seeing these uh switches move on their own yeah so my back
3: was to the control panel so I didn't see the switches if they were moving by themselves or not yeah they yeah, I'd worked in this unit for two and a half years at this point and never experienced anything like that before not even one at a time switching by itself which you know if that were to happen like I would say okay it's an electrical issue or you right. know there's a mechanical explanation for this but
2: were those doors uh, releasing any inmates or or do or was any were they changing any circumstances?
3: no, so fortunately, this unit is a um a worker unit, so they're always pretty well behaved and they you know they have jobs so they don't want you know they they're making the most money that an inmate can work while working there, so you know they have a lot of incentive to you know not do anything <laughs> crazy.
2: It unlocked doors for them. They could have departed their cells, but they didn't. Yep.
1: Yep, they could have. Wow. Did that uh, stir any inmates? What did they say? You know, because this is all their doors, right? Clicking open and and shut again.
3: So I did have one. I think he was my janitor. He asked me about it the next day. He's like, hey, were you guys messing with the doors last night? Like, we weren't. Something (laughs) was. Oh, jeez. Do the inmates have any stories? Right before I left working there... um, I had a death in my unit in unit 13. He was actually a co-defendant of Richard Holmes. So it's kind of this weird connection there. Okay. He had been ill. He'd been pretty sick. He actually, you know, was, you always see him out there. He was saying his goodbyes and stuff. So he was expecting to pass away soon. He had a lot of health issues. COVID screwed up everything as so far as staffing goes. So I had been pulled out of the unit and I was made a response officer. So my job was just to kind of, Walk around all the units, make sure everything's okay. If there's an emergency, I would respond to it. So, since it was the unit that I was supposed to be assigned to, I still felt the, you know, sense of ownership there. So, I would go in there and make sure, you know, breakfast got fed appropriately, everything was going right. So, I'm in that control center, and the other officer working the unit, he's feeding breakfast to the, the tiers. And all of a sudden, he rushes into the control center and he's like, hey, they're saying this guy's dead. I'm like, okay. So we go out there and long story short, we end up doing CPR on the guy for like an hour and the EMTs get there and pronounce him dead. But after that, all the guys on that tier kept telling me that they kept seeing him looking out of his cell window at them like for another three or four months after that. So yeah, there's stories like that that I've heard. I've heard plenty of stories of going... So when we count, you have a, a piece of paper and you have to mark each cell and what, how many inmates are in that cell. So I've heard stories of officers, you know, they swear that there was an inmate on that bunk when they, they counted, but, you know, they go back to double check. There's nobody there. So I hear stories like that. The inmates, um, they tell me all the time that they hear voices and, you know, yelling and the open dorm situations. Like I had one inmate asked me, he's like, Hey, who's yelling? Why is it so loud in here? I'm like, I didn't hear anything. I'm standing like right outside the door here. I didn't hear anything, things like that. I have a question about when you got the tug on your belt
2: upward on your utility belt, was it forceful enough that it altered your footing a little? Did you have to take a a step to maintain your balance?
3: It was gentler than that. But like I said, like I physically reacted to it and spun around because I thought I was being, you know, grabbed by an inmate. Wow,
2: so all these
3: stories that you've sent, how many different
2: facilities do they represent?
3: That was just the one facility that I worked at most of my time. There's a story from the minimum custody facility that I kind of teased at the end of my email. So this minimum custody facility, when I worked there, we were switching over. So it used to be a male housing unit, now it houses females. So we switched that over and then after I left, there was another housing unit that they decided to switch over to a female unit. And when they did this, there was a supposedly a a male entity in that unit that hated women. These female inmates would have scratch marks on their their bodies, mm. um typical kind of poltergeist activity, you know things moving around on their own, stuff like that. So there's this group of um ladies inmates who got together and they all identified as witches so they put together some healing spells and cast out whatever this demon or poltergeist or whatever activity was in this unit they were able to cast it out i guess
2: so that worked whatever they did worked they stopped getting bothered
3: i guess so yeah and again i wasn't there when that happened so that's secondhand information but yeah it's quite a story
2: yeah that is quite a story
1: Anything uh, happened to you recently in the facilities that you uh, you've been working at? Do you think anything has uh, followed you into <laughs> your regular life?
3: Uh, other than a little PTSD. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Imagine that.
3: So the facility I work at now is it's pretty new. Uh, it was built in the early nineties, so it's only about thirty years old. Which I don't know. I've heard some stories from there. Um, last year on Super Bowl Sunday, there was an inmate that passed away. And I've heard that the cell he was in is haunted now. I haven't experienced anything or seen anything. I've only been working in that facility for about a year now. So I haven't really seen anything there. And nothing's really followed me home. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that, because I was actually thinking about that the other day. It's like, you know, ghost hunters, you know, they're always worried about um, something attaching to them and coming home with them. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I used to live in that, or work in that environment for, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day and nothing ever, fortunately, nothing ever came home with me. (laughs)
2: Well, I want to thank you for sending your stories into us. They're compelling. Also, I love the photo. And um, it's really interesting that this stuff is going on in these active facilities where people are still around. But I guess the high traffic locations tend to have
1: more activity, hotels, uh, travel hubs. And a lot of intense human emotional energy, violent sorrow, misery, those kind of things, you know, that turns up the volume, it seems. And of course, uh, if you watched any ghost shows, you know that prisons are one of the things uh, they like to hunt more so because you get a lot more activity and it is, it can be a lot more violent in a sense and just the responses you get if you believe in ghost hunting at all. But, you know, so I, yeah, prisons, churches, hospitals, theaters, any place that has a lot of traffic, as Scott said, and a lot of intense emotional energy do seem to have uh, more reports, at least, of some kind of paranormal activity. So I think that so far, this is the only prison ghost story. So it's one of the classics of the genre. And it was great for you to come on and tell your personal stories here. And odd things do seem to happen. And uh, even though they don't go reported, it is part of the job, too. There's a lot of sitting around and talking because once you've done your duties, there's a lot of time that passes. And so uh, sharing these stories is just part of the job, it seems.
3: It really is. It's like I said, it's kind of uh, becomes the folklore of the of the prison. And I was doing some research on some folklore stuff th- this year. And I realized that uh, occupational folklore is a thing and uh, like mm-hmm. connected that together. And like, I guess a lot of jobs and, you know, things like that have their own set of folklore. And I'm glad I could contribute a little bit of my own to, you know, this
2: well, listen, before you go, um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Ida History and uh, and your partner? You guys have a book out, too, rec- just recently, right?
3: Yeah, so uh, Mark Iverson, he's my business partner and co-author. So I met Mark actually about two years ago, this October. He used to work for the city of Boise. He used to do tours for the city as the, part of the arts and mm-hmm. history department. And people started asking him, like, you know, what happened in this building? Anything crazy? You know, this looks like it should be haunted. And then it kind of sparked an idea in his brain to start a macabre history of Boise walking tour. So he's been doing the macabre history of Boise for about three years now. And that's how I met him. One of our mutual friends had posted on Facebook. So I'm like, I'm going to go check that out. Seems right up my alley. So I did the tour with him. Previously uh, to that, I had done a podcast of my own called Cascadia History of the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. And then I published my first book called Brave as a Lion, Jeff Stanifer, and the Knights of the Golden Circle, which Uh is influenced by a couple guys I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And. So it's a biography about this guy named Jeff Standifer, who was a member of the KGC, and he was working kind of in the Idaho Pacific Northwest area during the Civil War. And then after he left Idaho, he went down to California, and he's helping men get from California back to Texas to join the Confederate Army. Okay. So he has a crazy story. And then, uh, so I got to joking with Mark. I'm like, hey, so when you're ready to write the macabre history of Boise book, you know, I'll write it with you. And then, you know, it was like a year and a half after that, we just published uh, Murder and Mayhem in Boise together. And you can find that on Amazon and all the regular places. So we worked with a publishing company called the History Press, which if you go into any museum in, in the United States, you'll see books by the History Press in there. But yeah, it's just a collection of kind of historical true crime type stories, crazy stuff you know, that happened in Boise and then we're following it up next year with a book called Haunted America, Boise. So we're Mm. looking at some of these ghost stories and stuff like that. Uh, So we do our Macabre History of Boise walking tour um, and then the Macabre History of Nampa, which is a small town near Boise. And then we also just purchased a vehicle to do auto tours. And it's a great, I don't know if you saw it on our website. It's a 1978 GMC Kingsley Motorhome. Uh, Oh, wow. It's burnt (laughs) orange with the, the, shag carpet and everything. And it's a beautiful vehicle, but yeah, we're doing some auto tours in that now.
2: Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll have a link to that on the show page.
1: Go see what these fellows are doing because uh, they have really good uh, social media offerings as well on Instagram. And you, where else can people find you on social media? I think you guys have a, a Facebook page.
3: Yeah, So we're on Facebook at Ida History, Instagram at Ida History, and then you can find our tours and such at IDAHistory.com
1: awesome
2: yeah i'm looking at the rv right now that is amazing <laughs> it's very space age i love it <laughs>
3: with a big bubble window in the front yeah
2: that's the best uh thanks again for coming on and um <laughs> and contributing to this year's series of halloween stories we really appreciate it well jeff made a joke about that but that's a full-blown physical assault by something unseen Yeah, you know, we talked about that kind of stuff on the show but That is super rare in the paranormal world. Mm. There's definitely something very creepy about a ghost choosing to hang around an active prison too. But, you know, mm -hmm. maybe that's just how it works in a case of a sudden loss of life. I I don't know because, you know, you have that one inmate who was murdered and maybe that was the residual thing that uh, Jeff saw going into the closet. But then the physical wedgie situation is something different. (laughs) I I don't
1: know. All I know is that not everyone can say they got a wedgie from a ghost. All right. So how about the next story here? I like this story a lot because of a lot of it because of the person who tells it yeah and another thing i liked about the story is the atmosphere but i also like the position of having to deal with something you may not totally believe in and then it rocks your world a little bit some people who hear the story might say well maybe had to be there but i would say that uh, for somebody our storyteller molly who was there and the people who received let's say the the party favor of sorts This really changed their lives, and you now have to come to grips with, as they say, are you going to believe your own lying eyes, or are you still going to hang on to what you've been taught? And in this case, our storyteller is Molly, and she is a surgeon, scientific, rational thinker, to us, extremely credible. And that's what we're all looking for, right? Somebody who's got some professional chops that are based solidly in science, but also deal with that part of life and death that is, uh, you know, right there at the line. The other thing I like about this is that I don't know if she really believes in the tarot cards. Maybe that's changed now, but she finds them fun and appreciates just them as an art and kind of a hobby and something fun to do. And there's a bit of theater in it, and she will admit to leaning into that theater and drama, because I've also seen with uh, just a lot of people, it doesn't matter if you're in the science background or or what you believe in, uh, really like Halloween. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I grew up, of course, one of my favorite holidays, although I like them all, but this one includes candy and dressing up and doing uh, fun, spooky things. It's not just for silly people. <laughs> so I love that part of it. But she's also a very rational thinker. And here's what I liked about the angle of the story. So you might be playing around with the tarot cards and you say, well, I don't believe in any of this stuff. It's just for fun. But what if it doesn't matter if you believe in the tarot cards? They have other plans. So folks, we would
2: like to welcome Molly Jane to the show, who sent in a great story during our call for stories. And Molly, you might not know this, but it's funny. We had asked for listeners to send stories in in the past. we got a few dozen, several dozen, 30, 40. For this Halloween stories submission, we've got probably over 100 stories now that have come in and we're looking at every single one of them. (laughs) Yeah.
1: How many forest? Uh, well I think as of today we're over 100 but they keep trickling yeah. in because of course people don't all listen to the the episodes at the same time and if you hadn't right. heard the Missing 411 series you may not have known uh, there was a call for stories but it's just weird that uh, we're getting so many, but also very delightful because again, this is uh, this is why we started the podcast to hear other people's strange stories. And
2: before we ask you to tell the story, why don't you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and your background? Maybe how how long you've been listening to Astonishing Legends, that sort of thing. What what brought you to us?
4: So I have been listening to you all since the very beginning of your show. Oh, wow. uh, I was yeah, that was actually when I was uh, just fresh out of residency. I'm a general surgeon. And I was actually doing some traveling work as a locums physician for a while. And so podcasts were what kept me sane. And you guys were actually one of the first podcasts that I really subscribed to and have stuck with ever since. So getting to come here is, is—is yeah, I'm going to fangirl out a little bit for you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Please go ahead. Well, we're excited yeah. to have you. Yeah. Whenever somebody says they've been with us the whole time, I'm always like, because, you know, it's been a haul and we've changed a lot, hopefully for the better. At least it's always nice to hear that people are staying with us and not be like, oh, this show hadn't been good since 2015 know, or whatever. So <laughs> no, absolutely not. Thank
1: you. Yeah. Yep. As you said in your in your story here, being a surgeon and a person of science and logic and reason, being able to quantify all this stuff, how are you enjoying this show at all? It's like our friend, uh, Chris Cogswell. We, we tease him a lot. Oh yeah.
4: Yeah. Chris is great.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And he's uh, he's got a great show of his own, the mad scientist Mm -hmm. podcast, and he's got a PhD in chemistry and I think some uh, with applied chemistry practice and he just loves the subject matter and not that he shoots everything down. He doesn't, but of course he wants to approach it with a rational scientific viewpoint at first and then whatever's left over, it's like, well, that's an unknown, perhaps. So I, I, I do appreciate his, his viewpoint, but then we always tease him. It's like, why are you even listening to any of this <laughs> Lulu stuff? It doesn't make any sense. So I'll put that question to you.
4: Yeah and and I'm kind of right there with him with that where yes mm-hmm. I'm I am an arch skeptic. I don't believe most things, but the stories are still fun even if I don't 100% believe them. It's still sure. just enjoyable to go for the ride.
0: Right. But it's great.
4: You know and, and like all skeptics when we get into these paranormal stories, we got to drop that big old butt on the table, but there's mine is that mm-hmm. there are things that have happened since I have moved up to where I am in New England right now that mm-hmm. I have approached from the most rational, scientific, everything I can think of, and yeah. they don't fit. I don't know. But um, at the end of the day, they happened. And right. sometimes there are very concrete things, and it's like, I can't explain that away. So that's yeah. the fascinating part. It doesn't mean that it's paranormal. I don't necessarily think that, but right. whatever. It's still, there is this thing has happened, and I need to figure it out.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: Well, so let's hear your story. And then we may ask you some questions along the way. We'll try not to interrupt too much. And when it's done, we maybe have a few more questions for you. But whenever you're ready to share it, we are ready to hear it.
4: Okay. So all of this kind of centers around the fact that in addition to what I do for a day job, I have a lot of hobbies involving crafting, costuming, stuff like that. And Halloween is my jam. So my favorite (laughs) holiday, I throw a big party every single year. Friends, coworkers, family, everybody come to it and decorate everything up. So I kind of have to describe where I live a little bit. So we're in New England in a super rural part. I don't actually live that far from my hospital where I work. I'm about a 10 minute drive, but you would not be able to tell that you were anywhere near civilization when you're at my house (laughs) because it's this farmhouse out in the middle of the woods. (laughs) We're actually not far off of a main road, but my driveway looks like an old logging trail. So most people do not know there's a house back there, which is fine. I'm great with that. I actually abut one of the state parks, so even though my property is 40 acres, there's several hundred more acres around me that is just woodland. And my closest neighbor is a bear. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds idyllic.
4: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. But yeah, the closest people to me are about a half a mile away by the road and maybe a quarter mile if you hike straight through the woods. So I'm on my own out there. But that makes it great for this Halloween party because I decorate up the whole length of this dark driveway, the dark yard, the forest around it, Halloween maze in the basement one year and just decorate the whole house up, themed foods, costumes, the whole deal.
2: Is it a large house?
4: Yeah, it's, it's a pretty decent sized house. It's two stories plus the basement, uh, about 3,000 square feet total, plus a huge garage, and then my chicken coops and stuff like that that's around it too.
2: Okay, gotcha.
4: So... This particular incident happened at one of my Halloween parties. It was actually the very first one that we did. And ever since I have moved into this house, there have been a number of those, I can't rationalize this, I can't explain it away. And this one was one that was a little less concrete than some of them have been, but it was still pretty weird. So of course, you know, we get the party kicked off, there's people coming. And my favorite thing to do with these kind of parties is to go into my little dining room area, which is kind of, it's more like a breakfast nook area, but it's just off the kitchen, but it's separate from the rest of the house. And we put up lace curtains and curtains on the windows and we decorate it with a bunch of spooky things like weird taxidermied animals and (laughs) stuff that you find at secondhand stores, creepy dolls, whatever, you know, and get the candles going, get the black lights going. And then I dressed up that particular year, kind of a Dia de los Muertos thing. So I had the Sugar Skull face paint, and a bodysuit with a skeleton on it, and a top hat. And I go in there and invite all my friends, if they want, to come into the voodoo lounge, as we call it, and you can have your fortune told. So, sometimes we mess around with a Ouija board, sometimes it's rune stones. This particular year, everybody wanted to do tarot. I was pretty excited because I had just gotten a new deck of tarot cards. And these weren't anything amazing that I got at, you know, a flea market or anything like that. They were just from Spirit Halloween. (laughs) <laughs> but I really loved them because they had they had uh, mythological creatures on them. So it was all the major and minor arcana cards, but they all had either cryptids or a mythological animal or aliens or something on them like that. And I'm a total nerd about that stuff. So to me, this is fun because then I can kind of play off of whatever's on the card when I'm giving my reads. So I don't actually believe that I'm doing anything magical when I do some kind of a tarot read or runes or anything like that. It's a subjective thing. It's very psychological, and I'm also pretty good at cold reading. So it's a really good place for me to kind of play around and mess with people. And uh, like I said in my story, um, cold reading is actually a big part of my career. So when you come in to see a surgeon, it's not because things are going great in your life, something's going on. And so every day I'm meeting strangers, first time they've ever laid eyes on me, first time they've ever talked to me, sometimes it's on the worst day of their life, I'm giving them bad news, a family member's got bad news, whatever it is. And I have to convince them through verbal, nonverbal means, everything else to work with me here. So what that means is, you know, you're going to agree to let me and my friends knock you out and I'm going to cut on you. And maybe we're taking stuff out. Maybe we're putting things in. Whatever it is, you have to really trust me. And so I have to convince you that this is a good idea. So cold reading is kind of helpful there because I can tell people's moods, I can kind of change my affect, change my voice tone, whatever it is that's going to make them feel more comfortable and just get that rapport going. So that's really important to my career. But it's also fun to use in tarot reading. And in these cases, these people that I'm doing these reads for, these are my friends, they're my coworkers. So this isn't cold reading, this is hot reading. Right. So I can use these cards to kind of tell a story or talk to them about something through the cards, basically. So for instance, that particular year, one of my best friends was actually looking at uh, changing jobs. She was another physician and she hadn't made that announcement yet. She didn't want anybody to know quite yet, but she'd been reaching out to a physician group in another city. And one of their group members actually contacted me kind of a back channel and asked me for a reference. And so of course I hadn't known anything about this. And my friend didn't know that they were doing this. This is a little bit of kind of, it's a dirty pool thing that we do sometimes, but it's like, okay, cool. So I gave her a good reference. But then I decided I was going to hold that over her because <laughs> she didn't tell me. <laughs> so yeah. when she came in and got her read, I made the cards say things like, oh, you've got this horrible secret. You're holding this secret. And oh, my gosh, your friends are going to be so worried if they you know, didn't know the, the secret. And you need to tell us the secret because otherwise calamity. And I just started messing with her through it. And after a while, she kind of went from being like, oh, crap, how, how do you know to, oh, you're screwing with me. (laughs) You're messing with me. (laughs) Right. And then she was like, okay, but she couldn't say anything. She couldn't call me out on it because then everybody else would know what the secret was.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's great.
4: Or another friend was having some family stuff going on. So I kind of used the cards to talk to her in a way to be like, hey, don't worry so much about what your family's saying. You should do what makes you happy. Those kind of things. So. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's like Mothman, you know, it seems like you can have second sight and you can see the future but you just have a different perspective and in this case you had information that was unknown
4: exactly yeah which
1: made it seem like uh you you could intuit things
4: yes exactly so and the more you get into the acting part of it and stuff and really kind of play it up and of course by now everybody's had a few drinks and a lot of you know food and it's dark (laughs) and the mood and everything. It's like you, you can really get to playing around with this so it turns into a little bit of a larp and that's fine that's fun
0: yeah so that's
4: great This year was the first year that another co-worker of ours came to the party, and we're going to call her Lisa. And she and I have worked together forever. We're not super close friends by any means, but we hang out all the time. She's this very outgoing, bubbly person, and she's lived in this town for her entire life. And like, she and her husband met when they were kindergartners, and that's just how their lives have been. Everybody knows them. They know everybody really just kind of tight in the community. And this was the first time that she'd come to one of my parties. And she was having a great time, but she decided she wanted to get her fortune told, too. And her husband was actually a, a retired school teacher. I will throw that detail in there. So he was very, like, even more of a skeptic than me. So, like, <laughs> no, nope, this is this is BS, uh, whatever. And he was almost kind of trying to talk her out of doing it. But she's like, dude, it's just for fun. Just yeah. let me have my fortune told. What's like it's, This is just for fun. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we go in and sit down to do her read. And the way I always set up these reads is, you know, we go into the spooky parlor, the mood, everybody, you know, I'm in costume, all this fun stuff. And I take the deck myself and I shuffle it. And then I hand it to the person that wants the read. And I tell them to really focus on their question or the problem or whatever it is that they want the cards to tell them about. And then I tell them to feel the deck and kind of feel the energy of the deck it's a little woo but it's like okay and if it feels good okay great that's what we will deal from but if you don't feel like it quite feels right then I tell them shuffle it yourself until you feel like it's right
2: is that like a standard tarot procedure or is that just something that you do for yourself
4: no this is my own made-up thing
2: okay I like it though all
1: right I have heard of that before and I've heard of uh, people who do a lot of tarot readings don't like to let other people handle the cards too much because they claim is that you're diffusing the connection that the reader has to the deck, that there is something tactile there, some kind of psychometry, something happening, you know, where that is important. And if you, uh, uh if you let other people handle it too much, it's, yeah. it's like having a dog that lives in a, a big house with a, I just like at college is that after a while the dog doesn't come to anybody. There, yeah. yeah nobody, so it's not yeah, your it's, dog anymore.
4: No. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas for me, I feel like it, the other way around, that's just kind of my take on it. And again, mm. again, I know I'm putting on a show. So that's kind sure. of the fun part to me is like, it doesn't matter what I do. And this sounds kind of wooish. So this is what we do. So I tried to shuffle the deck for Lisa. And I told her, focus on what the question is in your mind. And my best guess about what was she was going to be thinking about, because again, Lisa a very outgoing person and she talks a lot. So you usually know what she's thinking <laughs> And based on stuff that she had been saying, because her husband had just retired and she's, you know, middle aged herself. It's like I was betting she was kind of looking at retiring herself. So I figured I would kind of base my read around, well, you know, here's some things to consider. And honestly, I didn't want her to retire. So I was going to kind of work that in a little bit. It's like, are you sure? Are you sure that's the right (laughs) move? Because she does a lot of good stuff for our office. But anyway, so I start to try to shuffle the cards for her, kind of thinking this is what I'm going to do. This is my game plan. And I could not get the cards to shuffle. This is not a brand new deck. I've been shuffling this thing before the party. I've been shuffling it all night at the parties, working fine. You know, I've had a couple drinks, but I'm not that far gone. (laughs) I'm trying to shuffle (laughs) this deck and it's like it's been glued together. Like these cards will not shuffle correctly. So I end up kind of putting it under the tablecloth and kind of doing that, you know, you take half the deck and kind of mash it together like a little kid does who doesn't know how to shuffle. So I kind of did that just to get it back into a, a pile. And I handed it to Lisa and said, okay, feel the energy of this deck. Does this feel shuffled right to you? And she handled it for a bit and said, "No, nope, nope, this doesn't feel right at all. So I said, okay, you go ahead and shuffle it then. <laughs> and immediately she just shuffles it like no big deal. Just Vegas Card Shark style. She's got it all shuffled up and she did it a few times and said, okay, now it feels right. Okay. So I take it back from her and I deal it out. I always do it the same way. I know there's a lot of different ways to deal out the cards and how to kind of interpret the layout, but the one that I use just because it's simple is a cross pattern. So the first card that you deal out face up is the guest. It represents them or the person that's getting the read done. And then you lay another one um, just perpendicular across it. And that's supposed to represent the actual question or the problem or whatever this uh, person is seeking.
1: How did you come by this knowledge of, of how to do the reading?
4: when I was a teenager who was super into Wicca and things like that. (laughs) So Ah, this is stuff that I'm pulling from the way back machine.
1: (laughs) Ah, very good. I'm 40 now.
4: So this is, yeah, this is pulling from the way back and kind of, (laughs) once again, doing my own little spin on things. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So the first card is the guest. The second one is the question. And then you put one in four cardinal directions around that cross And those are the past, the present, the future. And then there's a card called the adversary, which is just, this is the the major thing holding you back from whatever you're trying to do. And then you deal four more cards off to the side. And those are just kind of other factors for this person to consider when they're trying to figure out what the path is going to be. And the idea of this particular spread is that this is not telling you exactly what is going to happen. It's telling you where the compass arrow is pointed right now, if you will. So this is what could happen if you do not do something to change it. It doesn't tell you what would happen if you change something, but it's kind of a butterfly effect a little bit sort of thing, where it's like this is what will maybe happen unless you change something, is the idea of this spread. And again, I'm kind of playing off the, the monsters or the mythological animals that are on these cards, because that kind of gives me some things to work off of. And going by the meanings of the cards, both the traditional definition and also kind of playing with the mythological stuff, I was trying really hard to make this, again, about retirement, about changes and, okay, the kind of the ending of things and stuff like that. And so one of the cards that came up right straight out the gate was the death card. And everybody that does tarot will tell you, okay, death doesn't mean death, but it means an ending. And that sometimes actually does mean death, but it's implying an ending of something. So could it also like, okay, mean I'm, a
1: big change? I've heard that too, is that it could be yeah. just a, a big change is coming, a transition, like death.
4: Yes. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. have an ending, a transition. So I'm like, perfect. I can work off of that. That was like the very first thing that came out. I think that was the one that was the crosswise card, was the death card. So I'm like, okay, this is perfect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this to talk about retirement. And that's what I'm thinking. But as I'm starting to deal more of the cards out, more of the cards out, more of the cards out, it's Charybdis, it's aliens, it's it's these different cards, but they're all by the traditional meanings and by even going off the the animals on the cards, it's chaos. It's not just a change, but like, oh my God, something really crazy is about to happen. Something really, truly life altering, something really bad is coming. And I'm trying to spin this as being like, oh, this isn't saying that retirement is going to be bad, (laughs) you know, that, oh you know, whatever, but I'm trying to find a, kind of a more positive spin on these cards, but it's like, ooh, okay, uh, wow. And as I'm trying to figure out how to tell her something other than, you know, buckle up buttercup, the power goes out. 10 o'clock at night in the dark Northern woods, there is no lights anywhere. Just all of a sudden, just horror movie blackout. Now, Uh luckily I have a generator and it's, it automatically kicks in when this happens because it happens not infrequently. But this time it took its dear sweet time kicking in. It took a good thirty seconds when it normally takes about ten. So we're all just kind right. of sitting there in the perfect dark, unable to really move or do anything, except for like there's a little bit of candlelight.
1: <laughs> oh, I was gonna ask. I was hoping there would be candles, like in a very for the very spooky mood, there would be a few candles that were still lit and everyone's A little in bit a glow. of candles,
4: but mostly the battery ones because everybody's uh, been drinking.
1: <laughs> that's a good idea. Right.
4: You know, yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. We, we think these things through a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so No open flames. But yeah. Right. yeah. So yeah, basically that's we have battery powered candles is the only thing that's glowing right now. And so there's not much that you can see. And finally, the generator kicks in and the lights come back on and everyone's like, Oh, phew. But about that time, everybody starts going, Ah, you know, it's getting late. It's time to go home. So I had to kind of be like, Okay, You know, I got to go be a good hostess and send everybody off and give them their doggy bags and stuff. But Lisa still really wanted me to finish up this read. So I kind of gave her this sort of as good as I could, like, oh, big changes are coming, you know, kind of watch out. But I didn't. Yeah, like I, I was no longer really had my heart into doing the full act. And again, this was kind of weirding me out all the way around.
2: Okay. So in the moment, it felt weird. It wasn't like a hindsight thing. You, It felt weird even
4: while it was happening. For yes. Yeah. Between one, the, the deck acting weird, that was one of the first things that kind of just like, this is strange. But then seeing those cards and not being able to really come up with a good spin for them. And I'm thinking, well, again, rational mind. I'm like, well, I'm getting tired. It's getting later at night. I'm not on my game as far as this acting stuff. And also, it didn't kind of help, too. Her husband, the arch skeptic who was standing behind her, kind of ribbing me and ribbing her the whole time, too. So I'm kind of like, "Ah, okay, you're getting me out of the mood here a little bit. Mm. Then the blackout happens. And it's like everything about this was starting to be like, I'm I'm kind of over this. I'm done with this. So I wanted to hurry up and finish the read, get my guests home. One of my friends was going to stay the night. So just kind of getting everything sorted and settled. So I gave her this vanilla read that I could with it about big changes. And I could kind of tell she was disappointed. She didn't feel like she'd gotten that good of a read. I could tell because she's not got the best poker face, (sighs) but it's like, okay, but whatever. So packed her up some cookies to go home with and her and her husband took off as well. And so everything else, the rest of the night was fine. I actually did another read for the friend that stayed over that night and cards shuffled up fine. Nothing felt weird. Nothing else creepy or weird happened the rest of the night. We went to bed, no biggie. And a couple days later, I actually left out to California for a conference and when I got there, my, uh, I missed a call on my phone, and it turned out to actually be one of our supervisors at the hospital calling me to let me know that, oh, hey, Lisa's going to be out for a bit. And I said, oh, what's, you know, I called her back and said, what's up? And she says, well, her husband died. Now, this was a guy in his mid-50s, super active, super healthy, like no smoking, nothing. He actually ran or biked several miles every single day, no matter what the weather was like and he'd actually gone out that morning on one of the trails to go jogging and several hours later another jogger came across him and unfortunately by then it was already too late and he'd had a massive heart attack wow so of course i hear this and i'm out in california and it you know it struck me with the tarot read of course i'm like ooh i hope she's not like weirded out by that like i still was thinking to myself I was like i mean that was still that was still just an act that's still just the thing that i always do like that didn't mean anything but it still felt weird <laughs> and I was re- I was really hoping that like the next time I saw Lisa that that wouldn't be anything to her and maybe she'd forgotten all about it. But when I got back and when she came back to work after the funeral and everything that was actually the first thing that she approached me and said, was that real? That was her question to me was was that read real? Like I feel like those cards were saying something other than what you told me they said. And I couldn't answer that because all I could tell her was uh, I wasn't faking that. That's what actually happened there.
0: Right. (laughs)
2: Well, that's just, when I got to that point, when you, and what, in your story and what you sent in, I was just, I was taken aback. It's a really interesting story for a lot of different reasons. One being that for you getting into it, it's a performative thing that you do for fun. And it seemed like even in the moment for you, the deck took over in a way, or something became centered on making sure that this particular message came through.
4: Yeah, that describes it correctly. Yeah. And there's a thousand other stories I can tell you about weird stuff that happens at my house. But the number one thing about it, the more like I until you guys actually called for submissions, I hadn't really ever like laid it all out or written it all out. And now I'm starting uh-huh. to. Uh-huh. But the pattern that I get, and again, this is from somebody who is skeptical and mm-hmm. I'm not sure what this really is, but it does seem to be if there is a something here, it. Mm-hmm stages things it does things to get my attention and it does things in a way where it's like yeah you're right i'm not in control of this all of a sudden and it's really weird stuff (laughs) it's really weird and it's really random
1: (laughs) and maybe that's the message you're not totally in control you poke the bear and you got a reaction and then now what do you do with that and so like you said it the feeling there was that something was trying to interact get their attention make a statement and after a while, you know, who knows how these things work, but uh, is that something is maybe interacting with you just here and there, just saying, I'm here, <laughs> whatever, yeah, whatever this yeah, is,
2: they're yeah. there. If you are giving yourself over to the idea that this wasn't just a coincidence and a strange series of events and something was affecting the deck in this particular reading. Would you, as someone who lives in the house, and you may have a hard time with this because of your extremely rational and science-based background, but would you, what would you attribute this particular reading to? Would you attribute it to a traditional tarot reading, whatever's behind tarot for all these thousands of years or however long it's been around, or would you attribute it to something in your house meddling in your performance to send a message that it was aware of that should
4: be told? And that's a great question. And I have thought about that a little bit too, because the tricky part or the cusp of that question is if these are the same thing, so if the, let's just pretend for a second, call it an entity, let's just say that, that's doing these other things, it has never ever done anything else that made me think it was prescient, that it could foresee right. the future. Nothing else it's ever done has ever looked like that. Whereas this was something that essentially was prescient or was it picking up on something in Lisa's husband that none of the rest of us were picking up on also possible. So I can't answer that because it really hinges on that. It's like, was this actually predicting the future or did it know something about his heart, for instance, that we didn't know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. in, in kind of the more mundane way, which is still miraculous to a degree is like the dog that can smell cancer.
4: Yes. Yeah. Somebody,
1: yeah. or the cat that knows you're about to pass away, and it comes uh, and keeps you company yes. in your in your last oh, yeah. hours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the medical field is is filled with this, but you know, one statement here is, can the cards do their thing, regardless of what you believe in, in that it doesn't yeah. require your belief or faith to operate? It's just doing its thing. It's kind of like the magic yeah. eight ball, and and sometimes it's wrong. But my question to you, this could be easily written off as just a coincidence, a bizarre one, a close-to-home one, but just a coincidence nonetheless by someone who is skeptical or rooted in science or just agnostic like yourself about these things. So why do you believe this may be otherworldly or uncanny?
4: I think it is because of all of the other things that have happened to me here that Mm, it maybe does prime me for stuff here. If those other things had not happened, I truly would have written this off as a coincidence. It would have been like, whoa, right. that was freaky. But however, <laughs> with the yeah. other things that have occurred, it's like, eh, I, gotta, I, I have to second guess it.
1: When there's a pattern like that and there's a context now, it's not just random. It's not so random. And, it's, and especially when it hits home to the person experiencing it, it's like somebody shaking you by the shoulders. And then it's like, I'm still not listening to you. You know, it's just... It's still, right, uh, yeah. how far are you going to uh, deny it? But, you know, again, it is now with with your place and all the activity, there is context for this type of strange, yeah. uncanny coincidence.
4: Even though this particular thing has never happened again or since, I still, if I do the Halloween party and do tarot readings again this year, mm-hmm. could something else happen? Absolutely. I, I have no idea. <laughs> All right. So
2: let's talk about that context a little bit. And a couple of quick questions just from a chronological standpoint. How long have
4: you lived in this house? I've been in that house for seven years now. And how long ago was this event? Um, So this would have been 2018 when the tarot card reading happened. So I moved in there in 2016. How old is the house? It's only about, oh, let's see, it was built in 2005. So it's actually one of the newest homes in this entire area.
2: (laughs) Okay. What are some of the other things that are going on there, especially the the
4: more poignant ones that are giving you pause about this tarot reading? So probably the weirdest one is the one that happens once a year every year. Literally once a year every year, and again, this is the one that feels very very staged. And like, I'm supposed to notice this because it's kind of in a window of time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So usually early December, but it's not the same day every year. So it's not like it's December 12th that this is going to yeah. happen. You can't predict when, but it's, it's in that coming way. up
1: though. Yeah, it's, yeah, gonna, yeah, it's exactly. about to happen again. Okay. Yep, <laughs> we're,
4: we're coming right up on it. So, and it only happens in the evening about seven, eight o'clock at night. So it's after dark, but it's not the middle of the night. It's not the witching hour. And it only happens when myself, any other person in the house with me, and all of our animals are in the living room of the house. All together, You know, the TV might be on, but it's quiet. We're all right there, so we can all see each other. So we know it's not one of us doing it. Again, feels very set up. And what happens, so I kind of have to describe my house just a little bit. So the living room is on the far corner of the house, and there's a, basically the couch is on the wall that's the outside wall. And then the TV is across the room on another wall. That wall is shared with the staircase going from the ground floor up to the second floor. So if you're sitting on the couch looking at the TV, you're looking at that wall, but you can't see the stairs. They're behind that wall. And what happens is there's footsteps on the stairs. You don't hear anything in the hallway below. All of a sudden there are footsteps, doot, 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 up the staircase to the second floor. They are unmistakably human footsteps. Like not the house settling, not the wind, not any, like anybody who has ever heard them with me has been like, yep, those were footsteps and nothing else happens after that. You can go around the corner and look. There's no more sounds. There's nothing to see. The lights don't flicker, nothing. It just doot, 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 doot. And it's done. Is that fast
2: that you're, is like.
4: Uh, Just normal pace. Like it's not hurried. It's not like a little kid scurrying up the stairs. It's not like heavy boots. It's not high heels. It's very. Indistinct, but it's just, it's definitely footsteps, just do, 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 do up the stairs.
2: Okay.
4: And the weirdest part of all is so, back when it was my my boyfriend who moved up here with me originally, he had cats, and these were skittish cats, like anything would set them off and they'd run away and hide. And now, my current SO and I have three dogs, and they are watchdogs. They are guard dogs. They will freak out about anything. So, if an actual another person was in our house walking around, I would fully expect my Doberman would be over there out for blood, but they don't do anything. They notice it. And the cats were the same way. They notice it. They sit up and they listen. And you can watch their eyes track it up the wall to the ceiling, but they don't freak out. They don't go check it out. They don't do anything. They just listen. And then as soon as it stops, they're like, okay. And they just go back to whatever they were doing. (laughs) Like they don't care. So
2: it's a resident they might be familiar with.
4: Exactly. Or it doesn't freak them out in any way, shape or form. And it was kind of funny because when I started dating my current fiance, I told him about it. And he's he's in the same camp with me, mostly disbelieves, but has had some weird stuff himself, that same thing. And he did not believe me. He thought I was full of crap when I told him about the footstep thing. But as if the footstep creator was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to show you. It waited until a night when he stayed over. And that's when it did it.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And it did okay. it for him. And just the whole scenario. And then even his dog didn't freak out. His dog who hadn't been there that much was like, ah, okay, whatever. Didn't freak out. So he freaked out. <laughs> he was like, oh my God, is that <laughs> what you were talking about? I was like, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah. And he's a combat veteran. So his first instinct was to arm himself and just search the house top to bottom out the garage, went around the, the property, couldn't find tracks, couldn't find anything. And I told him, you're not going to find anything. This happens. And then it's done. And it won't happen again until next year.
2: It's specifically is one time. It's not always the exact same day. It's around. Correct. Yeah. Different days, but in that same window of time, roughly early December. Right. And then the the other thing that's interesting about that is that kind of rules out, oh, the house is settling. All those kinds of things are ruled out by something Mm -hmm. that's that inconsistent. It's chronologically consistent, but otherwise, yeah, that's interesting.
4: It happens every year,
1: and you have confirmation of uh, this uh, external stimuli from the animals that it's not just the humans hearing it. Or you know, as we always say, is it happening in your head? Yep. Are you yeah. imagining it? Is it a a, a group uh, experience? But at least the animals are hearing something too that oh, yeah. they're reacting. Yeah. And often they're reacting to something that humans don't hear. So yeah, uh, yeah. You wonder about that, but but everybody there is so. Well, I had I just had one comment about the shuffling of the cards because that part struck me mm-hmm. in the story. And I actually really didn't think about it too much until you started describing the the cross pattern. And it, you know, there are different ways that people can lay out the cards, of course, depending on what works for you. My personal story with that and what I will vouch for is that sometimes the shuffle is weird. I was over at an ex-girlfriend's house and she I wouldn't say dabbled in it. She knew about it. She'd read up about tarot and had a few books and did it occasionally. And, you know, because I was curious about it. I have a deck of cards that I really like, which is the traditional Rider-Waite uh, deck. Oh, yeah. and, yep. and that's what she had. And it's like, but I, I kept begging her, probably like your friends, like, come on, do a reading for me. And she's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't want it. It's like, well, why'd you study up on this stuff <laughs> if me? you're not going to try it? Yeah. So come on, just do do one. So we were hanging out. She goes, okay. I shuffled the cards so she handed me the deck and I did my, uh, my blackjack dealer kind of a, you know, at the quarters and did the yeah. bridge yeah. shuffle four or five times. And also, you know, as part of it, you're, you're given the energy to the cards. So I, I shuffled it really well, a bunch of times, cut the deck, did the whole thing, handed it to her. So she did the reading and, and laid out and it was that cross pattern. And she gets to, it's the adversary card, I guess, because I just remember what she said. It was, I think it was the sun, uh, card. And she said, there is something keeping you down, something keeping you from your personal glory, whatever it was, that's kind of holding you back. And it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. At least uh, it's not just my choices. So, <laughs> or, or maybe uh, it is. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just something. Maybe it's me. It didn't, uh, yeah, it didn't seem self-reflexive. It was uh, easy to, to blame uh, the fault in your stars. Yeah, so We all got a little bit uh, of that, so, yeah. So that was interesting, but I was I was fascinated by her explanation of all the cards and what they meant and how it laid out. And and I said, uh, can you do another reading for me? Uh, and she was like, no, no, I don't <laughs> know. Just you get the one and it's like, oh, come on. And I don't know why she was hesitant because she wouldn't really explain. It. She goes, I just don't know. I just don't want to do it. Like, let's just watch TV. It's like, okay, I'll tell you what, We'll do it one more time and then I will never ask you to do it again. She's, okay. So I took the cards and I really shuffled up, you know, did... The, the whole dealer thing where they're they're mixed on in you know, a blackjack dealer they're mixed on the uh, on the uh, on the rug and I mixed them up shuffled them really well like four or five times until almost where she was getting annoyed so then,
4: <laughs> like hurry up man.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and so I I cut the deck and she lays out the cards and I can't remember exactly except for one card they came out exactly as she had done the previous reading yeah I mean how many cards are in a cross it would be five or six.
4: Uh, so it's the four around plus the two in the middle. So that's six in the cross itself. And then if okay, you do the other right. four off to the side too, then it's 10 grand yeah. total. So.
1: I think it was, it could have been nine were exactly the same out of the 10. Yeah.
4: Yep. And
1: that freaked her out so bad. She was like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> we're, we're done. Because it's, yeah, like you said, it's a coincidence. And are like, well, yeah, come on. That's going to happen every once in a while. But like, yeah, what are the odds of that? You know, yeah. it's very, it's very odd. And then she gets to the end, she's like, yep. There's still something there that's kind of invisible holding you back. And it's like, okay, well, at least that's whatever the message is coming through the cards. That's the message is that uh, you got to work on this or just be patient. I told you once, I'm going to tell you again, whatever whatever force is there. Yeah. Take the hint and (laughs) uh, don't, you know, you don't need to shuffle it a third time and pressure luck with this. So, but I was going to ask you, is there anything that weird, uh, we've been getting a lot of weird Ouija stories. Which are frightening. And has anything happened when you're just kind of messing around with it? Because for some people, nothing ever happens.
4: Yeah. In, in my case, no. I, we, we mess around with it from time to time, but we have never gotten it to really do much. And honestly, that can be kind of a mix of who's in the room. But yeah, I've never really gotten anything much out of that. Um, same with the runes. They're, they're a lot less specific, so they're not that much. But this was the only time I've really done a fortune-telling thing
0: mm-hmm. and
4: freaked myself out with it so back in the day i've uh, in high school in particular when i first learned that i could do the cold reading thing i actually used to get invited to parties to do seances oh
1: wow. and again
4: i knew i knew i was full of crap <laughs> i knew right. i was not talking to anybody yeah, but it was interesting to see how little it took to freak people out yeah yeah yeah. But that's one reason why I quit doing it was because I, this feels kind of unethical because <laughs> I knew what I was right. I knew I knew what I was doing. Right. So it was super easy to freak other people out, but that never freaked me out because I knew it was a game. The tarot read here was different because it actually did freak me out a little bit. And then what happened afterwards really freaked me out, even though I was still trying to tell myself, like, eh, nah, I mean, yeah, yeah, trying to convince myself. <laughs>
1: What do you think about stories of patients experiencing near death and coming back to tell about it? Have you Are you curious about that aspect or phenomenon?
4: I am, and I've witnessed it once Ooh. where somebody came back from a thing. So, I mean, obviously, I've seen plenty of people pass away, and we've definitely resuscitated people many a time and got them back from the brink of death. The one that freaked me out, I got to be a little careful to make sure I don't give away any details that would be stuff, but essentially, this was an elderly man, he was in a bad car wreck, severe trauma to his abdomen in particular, and was not expected to survive. We took him crash style to the operating room trying to do whatever we could. And shockingly, we were actually able to save his life. It was really touch and go, but we were able to save him. And this was not up here. This was at a huge level one trauma center that I used to be at. Mm -hmm. And he also had a head injury. So it was a while before he was really awake or coherent at all. But when he did, he actually came back really fast. And seemed to remember way more than he should have. And he was actually able to, despite the fact that at the time he was, as far as we knew, unconscious. Like not capable of telling anybody anything because he was intubated and all this other stuff. He was able to very accurately describe our ER and what it had looked like when we were taking him crash style down to the operating room. He didn't say anything about the operating room itself, but he knew a little too much about what things looked like on the way there before he was placed under anesthesia. So that one was weird. <laughs> mm. He did not describe it as, you know, any kind of going to the light or any dead relatives or anything. But what he was describing was basically an out of body thing where he was essentially sitting up on the cart, riding down there with us Interesting. <laughs> while his body was unconscious on the table. So that one I could not explain. That was a weird one. At the time, I'm kind of like, ah you know, you were on a bunch of drugs and you had a head injury. But there were some things he said that I'm like, have you been in our ER before? He said, no, I've never been here before. Wow. And it was it
1: was weird. Well, it's like the mechanics of the card. Is it just in that condition? Are you open up to some sensory input that is normally shut off to us? Or it's like the cards? Are they in that condition or whatever? Uh, it's mundane in a weird way that we just don't understand. And like him being in that condition was able to intuit things or or sense uh, have some sensory input that he shouldn't have but it's not, uh, it's not anything unnatural. It's just in in those right conditions. That's my
4: take on it. Yeah. And even if you, if you subscribe to simulation theory or, you know, glitch in the matrix kind of stuff, I mean, that explains what happens at my house too. (laughs) That could be a glitch in the matrix, the footsteps and yeah, like I could be hearing an echo of my own footsteps. I don't know, but I feel like there's probably somewhere a natural explanation for this stuff. I don't know what it is though. Like, I'm, I'm not that smart. I don't know what that is.
2: There's a lot of things to think about when paranormal investigators look into something like that, which, you know, they probably wouldn't this because it's so rare and mm-hmm. simple, but like... You know, the first thing they would come and do is check for radon and uh, carbon monoxide and the things that might cause you to hallucinate or whatever. Sure. But yeah. then, even if you're exposed to those kinds of outside influences, more than one person doesn't experience exactly the same thing, right? Two people don't hallucinate the same thing. So, you've already beaten that. Plus, you've got the animals are aware of it. All of that stuff is very interesting, and a lot. And we had heard yeah. over time that even with the house not being that old, that I can't remember who said this, but it struck a chord with me when they said it's the ground not the building.
4: I believe that. Yeah. The the property is older than the house. <laughs>
1: right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of variables. Like I said, uh, you know, it could be the person too and the person in connection with the ground in connection with.
4: Yeah. Yeah. A combo of, and yeah, I, I never really met the people that I bought the house from. So I don't know if they had anything weird happen to them, but they were a young couple. They had kids and they're the same age as me. So they're still alive. Right. And we're the only two people that have ever owned the house. And then, yeah, the other stuff that's more physical, tangible things, moving stuff, it's like, that one's even harder for me to explain. That's not a hallucination.
2: Moving in front of you or just being relocated?
4: Being relocated. And the weirdest one of all was the day that I came out and there was an egg smashed on the floor of my garage.
2: Really? <laughs>
4: no reason. <laughs> yeah.
2: From your own coops, you think? or
4: No, no. Because, and I know it was not one of my chicken's eggs, because yes, I do have chickens, but all of my chickens can only lay brown eggs. That's what breeds they are. This was a white jumbo egg like you buy at Walmart, and it was smashed on my garage floor. And it was like, hi, okay, there's an egg on my garage floor. I don't have any rational explanation for that. <laughs> wow,
2: that's interesting.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, if you're gonna have a haunting, you gotta break a few eggs. You know, there's gotta be uh, exactly you know, yeah to get your attention. Yeah, as long
2: as it doesn't fry
4: on the
1: floor, poltergeist styles, like
4: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Now this was min- middle of winter, so it was mostly frozen. <laughs> oh my gosh!
1: Talk about uh, getting egged in a Halloween theme. That's another part of that could be coincidence, but when it seems to be part of a joke, not that that yes. was. I'm just saying yeah. other things that happen, which is kind of like. It could be a visual palindrome of sorts uh, or a uh, kind of a puzzle that is meant to reduce the amount of randomness to it and also deliver a funny message that's kind of sarcastic perhaps. But you do wonder, it's like that takes a little bit of intelligence and it's like, yes, we could be imagining it, but after a while, like how much is too much, you know?
4: Those were the last couple things that happened to me were actually right after Halloween last year. That's when the egg happened. And then right around that time too. So one of my dogs, when she was a puppy had a history of chewing up anything paper so you could not leave a book or anything around. She would just destroy it. She's grown out of that for the most part, but I actually have a a small collection of antique books Mm. like medical books Mm. and stuff that I keep locked up in my den so she can't get to them. So that's behind a closed door. And then during the daytime, I kept a baby gate across the stairs going up so that the dogs can't go up there during the day. One day I came home and door to the den was closed. Baby gate was still in place. I went upstairs to get my laundry and laying on the dog's bed, like specifically that dog's bed, was one of my books. <laughs> Untouched. Like it, it obviously wasn't her because one, she couldn't get into the den. Right. Two, she couldn't get up the stairs. And three, it wasn't destroyed. Right. So it was not her. <laughs> right but it felt like it, i that one made me laugh cuz i'm like okay if this really is a thing like it's screwing with me now this yeah, was a funny right. joke right here yeah. was yeah trying to frame the dog and behind. maybe it
1: kept her from actually destroying it out of
4: <laughs> maybe yeah maybe she was up to no good right. i don't know but yeah it was like there was a few things that happened right around the same time as the egg and that was one of them and it was just like this is so absurd that either somebody is playing a really long con con on me here, but yeah, like what is this?
2: Did you have white eggs in the house
4: at the time? Do you buy them or do you, nope. you just no no my yeah I've got laying hands right. I haven't so bought eggs them. in years. Okay. Yeah. there was literally no clue where that egg came from. Lisa from
2: the Tarot reading are you, did she mm-hmm. retire? Are you still in touch with her?
4: I uh, know nope. she's actually still working with us because okay. after he passed away she actually decided not to retire and has kept on going. Okay. Okay. And one night, actually, one oh, was I was a couple summers ago. So it was after he had passed. But a, a few of us went over to her house and had dinner. And I kept getting the weirdest feeling that he was there. Like, I know that doesn't sound very skeptical at all. But uh, it felt weird. And I looked at her and she goes, Oh, you sense him too. I'm like, please don't say that. <laughs> You're freaking me out a little bit here. <laughs> like, I, yeah, she's like, no, he's still here. He's still here. She fully believes that he is. Uh, oh my gosh.
1: Again, I love that angle because being a super debunky, you know, it's like, this is all baloney. Nothing happens to you. There's no afterlife. And then bingo. It's like, I guess I was wrong. You know, it's like, <laughs> suddenly it's like, oh, um, there is an after, you know, I, I'm somewhere, you know,
4: I'm not just or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah, right. Exactly. And then it, it's like, hey, man. <laughs>
1: yeah. It doesn't do anybody any good. And you can't say, like, I told you so. He's just on the other side experiencing this, like, well, uh, I was wrong <laughs> all these years. i like,
4: yeah, and still hanging out with my wife that I've known since kindergarten. So, yeah, that makes sense, though. I'm like, okay. Yeah. He would. I, I think he would if he could.
2: A very good friend of mine died three weeks ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's okay. He said, but he was 55 and in great health. And I was texting with him two or three Sundays ago, and then Wednesday he was gone. And uh, so when you said that about Lisa's husband, you know, it's scary. And uh, we're uh, forced and I are older than you. And so I've certainly been thinking about my own mortality a lot lately. <laughs> so,
4: Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. I'm unable to avoid that just where I am. So
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just quickly, I want to say, because one of the things that we learn in remote viewing, and particularly a type of remote viewing called associated remote viewing, which, by the way, for someone who's skeptical and science-based as you are, I think you would enjoy looking into controlled remote viewing.
4: I actually really do want to try that. I'm telling you it is interested
2: It's a mind blow. It's a mind blow. But with associated remote viewing, one of the things that you do is you, and I can't remember the name for this, forest. If it comes back to you, you can tell me. Oh, it's a uh, temporal attractor. Hmm. The idea behind this is that time is not linear and that you can reward yourself. It's very much, and I always joke, I joke about, have you seen Bill and Ted, the first one? Yeah. Oh yeah. I always joke Mm -hmm. about the prison scene when they're like, We'll remember to go back and put the (laughs) keys in the trash can behind the, you know, whatever in the jail, and it is dad's jail. And so this is that kind of thing where you say, Later on, I'm going to celebrate in this specific way this idea that I thought this was what this meant or didn't mean. And so you're you're telling yourself you're going to do that. And and apparently you get better and better at this. But if you don't do that, it nullifies the gut the instinct reaction that you had when you were trying to predict Mm -hmm. something. And so what I thought about when you talked about what was going on with that deck was how, regardless of what was happening with it, it was reacting to a future event because time is not linear.
4: Okay. So just,
2: I mean, it's just a theory, but
4: no, no. And I mean, that goes into glitching the matrix and simulation stuff too. I mean, that's time isn't linear there either. So
1: yeah, (laughs) essentially what you're doing is we experience time linearly, of course, but uh, it can go off. It's three-dimensional, right? It's not, it's not just a line is that it goes off and you're, that's the idea with, well, any kind of remote viewing is that you are able to go off in different directions in the space-time continuum, anywhere yeah, at any time, amazing. backwards, <laughs> forwards, present. So what you're Thanks. doing, though, is that, and here's the thing is that people say, well, I can be one, haven't won the lottery with that. It's like, well, there is a way to do that they claim that you can kind of train yourself to do that. And, of course, you start off trying to guess three numbers. And what the basic principle is, and, and it's it's nothing secret, it's on their website, sure. is that uh, you, you have somebody say, okay, move to next Thursday night, 7, 15 p.m., the lottery drawing for the big three, the daily three numbers at seven PM. It's now seven fifteen, and and you have to go by some kind of sense, like either tell me oh, what okay. You, okay. you smell, tell me what you hear, tell me what you uh, you taste. Yeah, you're
4: associating. Okay, okay, I get you. Yeah, through the remote viewing stuff. Yeah.
1: So then, what happens is that once that drawing happens next Thursday, and it's seven fifteen PM, and it's after the event, you then have the person who's the control person actually tell you what the associated numbers and the smells are. So it's like if three is garlic, let's say if you're mm-hmm. doing taste and the other number that was picked was seven, that's mint. And so you, what you're doing is you're beating a path loop as you said oh, with the temporal okay. attractor is yeah. that now you are moving ahead in time back on Monday to guess this, to be there at 7.15 and kind of have some prescience about what you're tasting. So if you said like, yeah, I tasted garlic or I'm just, just popped in my head like a, a garlic taste, like, okay, you got seven, you got one of the numbers right and you keep practicing with that and eventually, you don't know yeah, what the you... number
2: was but you know the taste or the smell or whatever. Oh, I get you. The yeah, The other yeah, person who's up on... assisting you has, made that so you're you're disconnect it's a blind operation
4: that's like a form of a synesthesia right which is a really fascinating thing i actually i actually have mild (laughs) oh you do oh you do yeah i have a mild form of it yeah yeah i get i get colors with letters and numbers
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's just fascinating but it's it's same kind of idea though is that the reason you do the association and the associative remote viewing part of it is that cognitively numbers are kind of abstract to us it's hard to guess numbers And so you're much more able to grasp something. An organic uh,
2: interaction. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's more part of your your sensory kind of inputs. And so, yeah.
4: Yeah. I would actually be I would actually be out of luck on the smell cuz I have no sense of smell to speak of. Oh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> in my career that's a superpower. We, we like that. <laughs>
1: <I> <laughs> yeah. Bet. Or that's the thing is that it, maybe that's there you you it's like with the cards like you said in in the laying out the pattern is that you don't know what you got to go with whatever works like you some of the things that especially like with remote viewing they think that wouldn't it wouldn't make sense. Uh, actually work with some people. Like they said, uh, you know, you might have a difficult session where nothing's coming to you. And, and it's really, you went to someplace really quiet and it's like you're under a tree or, you know, in, in some great controlled thing. They say, well, try going to a really noisy cafe. And I mm-hmm. like, what? That's not going to make any sense. Like, I don't, it's too much distraction. Just try it. And the person goes there and actually... With all the, the chatter and the, the clanking and the glasses, like you might do a you might yeah. have a better session. It's like there's That's no so uh, Yeah, they have you track everything.
2: Where are you were you hung over? Yeah. Have you been drinking? Were you sleep? Were you rested? Were you like, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever else. Yeah. All are that. you
4: high as a kite? Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do yeah. we keep
2: it all and then figure yeah. out where your best results come from and go back to that? The other thing about it is the people that use it to win the lottery don't go on the television and say, I remote viewed this. Of course yeah.
4: not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah because why would you yeah
1: you wouldn't believe him anyway that's right. so Nobody it doesn't, would believe it doesn't it. matter
4: oh uh, if i ever do win the lottery i will say it just even if it's not true <laughs> just send us a <laughs> picture it that. could be shawshank
2: style just I'd send us a, a picture it, yeah. of you with yeah. your new ferrari or whatever you know just
4: <laughs> yeah there you go yeah no i was just thinking it's like if time truly isn't linear i'm gonna laugh my butt off if it turns out that i'm the one that dropped the egg in my garage but it was me in the future yeah it's uh, that's
1: there you go that's the
4: thing i was messing with myself from that. <laughs>
1: Molly, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. I really, really enjoyed reading it, and I love the perspective. And it it really put me in the Halloween mood because I could picture there being you at your house with uh, the food no, and the drinks and the. Oh, hey,
4: okay, there's an open <laughs> invite if you ever want to.
1: <laughs> okay, all right. We make it up there. We'll be stopping by, and uh, we demand some spooky action.
4: Absolutely, <laughs> we will. We will try to stir it up for
2: you. <laughs> All right, it's All been right. an absolute pleasure. So Molly, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great talking to you. This was a great story. It's one of the reasons that we sent out for stories for Halloween this year. So thank you.
4: All right, thanks so much, Scott for us. This is great. I'm gonna keep listening. Awesome.
2: To me, that story had like a Reader's Digest quality to it, which mm. I'm sure a lot of people don't remember anymore. <laughs> but it, they used to have this section of great stories in each issue of that, uh, including the one we've talked about on the show before. There's room for one more. That's right. Elevator cable and. A, mm-hmm carriage, spooky carriage. It's a good one. But anyway, I like how Molly tells that story. I like her disposition. And like you said, Forrest, I like her credibility. Yeah. All right. So it's time for our last story tonight. This was another great one. And we have a new composer and sound designer with us for the first time this evening. It's his first show. And he's just brought so much to these stories. So I'd like to thank Alan Caressia for his work on this show and hopefully many future episodes of
0: Astonishing Legends.
2: How did you hear about Astonishing Legends, you've been listening to us for a while or?
0: So I feel like like a lot of people um, I picked up during the Oak Island series. Oh, cool. You know, I'm really big into paranormal, but I'm equally, if not more into kind of historical legends and cryptid stuff and kind of just really anything that's, you know, weird and abnormal history.
2: It sounds like basically you like the stuff we do. But you now you told me a minute ago when we were ramping up here, you have uh, your own podcast as well.
0: Yeah, um, some friends and I, for the past about two years, we've been doing this thing for ourselves where one of us each week will make a podcast about five songs. We call it Five Song Friday.
2: Oh, cool. We we'll
0: just release it to each other, and we've decided that we're actually going to make it into a full-blown podcast. So at the end of this month, we are going to make some final business decisions on everything and start recording it.
2: Wow. That sounds really cool now how do you do that from an ip standpoint can you play parts of the song or you can't or like what are the rules there
0: yeah so that's kind of what we're trying to figure out right now luckily one of us is actually a lawyer so oh great we have a little bit of insight into the law aspect of that yeah. um, and what we can and can't do but mostly what we think we're going to do is create the playlist release it and then make it a commentary show about the playlist
2: Oh, that seems like a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, because then everybody's got to, they have to, whatever, pay for Spotify or pay for whatever to hear it anyway. The artist exactly. gets their money and you can talk about it. Exactly, That's super cool. First, why don't you tell our listeners your name and a little bit about yourself, whatever you're comfortable sharing, and uh, then we'll we'll get into your story.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so my name is Austin. I am currently living in North Alabama and I've kind of been here my whole life. I moved away um, right after high school to Birmingham to go to college there and that's really when my paranormal research stuff started. My whole life before that, I was always interested in paranormal stuff. I mean, I was the kid that was running around in a tap shirt from ghost hunters when he was 10 years old, and we used to go on like ghost tours and ghost walks and everything like that, so the paranormal was always a very big interest of mine, but once I got to college, I noticed that there was a sign just on a board saying that there was a ghost hunting club coming to the school, and so... I was like, okay, cool. I just moved away. I need to make some friends. Let's join this. And joining that became me eventually leading it. It started out just kind of as a ghost hunting club. Then we became actually affiliated with the university and had funding. Wow.
1: Yeah. How did that happen?
0: Uh Um, Pretty much kind of any club could go to the board um, of presidents or whatever of the college. And as long as you had a sponsor from a professor, you could get funding. And so we found a professor who would actually listen to us, and took it to the board, and we received funding. It wasn't much funding, but it was enough to buy some gear and stuff.
2: I was just gonna say, you're truly emulating Ghostbusters, right? You're yeah, truly—they're no, exactly. <laughs> on campus, they're <laughs> trying to get money. Yeah, it's,
0: exactly. <laughs> uh, but the biggest thing that it got us was clearance into a lot of places. So yeah, we were actually able to, you know, get in touch with people that were, you know, over some of these more abandoned, say, mental hospitals in different areas and go in there and not get potentially arrested for trespassing. So (laughs)
2: Right, right. When Forrest and I started out, I remember Forrest, and I don't even know if you remember this conversation, but do you remember when we briefly were like, how can we get press passes? Do you remember that?
1: (laughs) Well, it's not something you want to mess with. (laughs) We tell people all the time, I mean, legend tripping is fun, but a lot of these places are private property, or they're government or state, and even though they're, they're run down and you are trespassing in a lot of cases, and a lot of cases it's dangerous. So it's better to have authoritative permission and access to a lot of these places. But that's the other thing as well, is that a lot of the more active places are these types of institutions. So that's great. You were able to get uh, a little bit of sanctioning from the school and then, then again, access to these places. And of course, I think you're in a good spot of the country for a lot of storied history and activity.
2: That's what I was going to say. The South is like, I mean, I'm in the South too, not as deep as you are, but like it's, there's so much, I mean, it's just whatever city you go into and anything that's technically the South. You're like, Oh yeah, that city's haunted. That's yeah. Yeah. I've driven through Alabama a few times and I've driven through a lot of states because I loved a road trip and all that, but I have not ever really visited Alabama, which I would love to do. Yeah,
1: I want to ask him about a mystery before we even get to the other mysteries.
2: Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. This is a
1: great opportunity, especially for college kids who have the energy and and can stay up late at night and still do their studies and, and get to all the other stuff. And uh, how many investigations overall do you think you and your club have done?
0: In the four years we were together, I would say we were doing at least one a week, so oh, okay. wow. probably close to, obviously not during the summer and stuff, but I would say we right. at least went to probably 100 to 150 places. Wow. wow, that's amazing. And some of those were the same place over and over again, but you know we went a lot.
2: What percentage of those investigations would you say you could find a mundane explanation for?
0: Um, for me personally, I would probably say like 75%. Right. We kind of went in with the aspect of if it can be anything else, it most likely is. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: And that's the way to do that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And like, obviously we had some people that would come and join that would come and, you know, obviously think that every single thing, every orb that they got on (laughs) camera was something. But for me being very a skeptical person in general, it took a lot to convince me. But when it did convince me, it really convinced me.
1: Yeah, when you have your bar set a little higher, especially if you come from a generally healthy, skeptical viewpoint, then when something is outside of that range where it's personally undeniable to you as the experiencer, then it has a lot more impact. And you know, frankly, it's a lot more impact for a lot of other people that are looking at the data. Which brings me to my next question: Out of all these uh, investigations you must've collected a lot of media. What do you think is your best evidence? And then here's the follow-up question, where did it all go?
0: Yeah, I would probably say our best evidence that we got was actually not recorded, And so we were at a mental hospital in Tennessee And we had a spirit box, which I'm sure you guys know how those worked. Mm -hmm. I got one in a drawer right Right. behind me. Yeah, (laughs) And so with those, you know, it's obviously very hard to tell when it really is something because it's like, oh, am I just picking up the same radio station over and over again? Right. But I was downstairs in this area and the rest of the group was upstairs. I was watching our cameras because we had cameras we would run in every building we went into. And all of a sudden they came on our walkie talkie and they were like, this thing wants to talk to you Hmm. and so apparently it kept saying my name but it wasn't in an exact set frequency where it would have been the same radio station and this whole night there we hadn't gotten any evidence until i went up there and then it started responding to me answering yes or no questions like very clearly through the spirit box it wasn't just a blip in the radio and it was only going to talk to me i don't know why but it was like just saying Austin over and over again. From what it answered, it was a doctor that had worked at the hospital previously. Mm. I'm not sure if they had passed away in the hospital or not. But yeah, it was a really weird moment for me. That was kind of the moment that I was always kind of skeptical on some things. Right. But that moment really was like, okay, this is something I can't explain. Wow.
1: Yeah. Well, it's in context. Like I said, it's, it doesn't seem to be uh, the random meter goes way down because it is responding, it's interacting rather than just spitting out words that uh, are out of context, don't have any meaning. You might get the response when you asked for it, but when it seems like it's answering a question, that's a whole different thing. So
0: why weren't you recording that? I don't know. It was the rest of the group. (laughs) So at that point we had went with some people who was their first time and I Mm -hmm. think that they just weren't recording, but a lot of that stuff just because that we were college students, it got lost. Yeah. However, there is, I believe a YouTube channel still up that has a few of the videos that we kind of compiled together uh, oh, it cool. should just be called paranormal research society at UAB i haven't looked and seen if it was up anymore that seems to be
1: the case with a lot of stuff is that when you're yeah. when you're there you don't get it i mean i think maybe if i've ever seen a full body apparition i had just turned off the camera at, at yeah, waverly yeah. Literally, uh, because we're, we we <laughs> yeah we were going to be moving it's like okay we've been sitting here for 20 minutes in the dark got nothing And then something happened and I still don't know what to make of it or what that was, if anything, or if it was just, I don't know. But I was really excited after it just happened. It's like, wait a second, did that, did I just see something? Because I just checked the room and that person's, there's nobody in there where this person walked into. And then I was very excited. It's like the camera, I've got the video camera. And it's like, no, I just shut it off (laughs) just before it happened. And like that happens so often or you trickster yeah, you don't get the um, I don't know if it new or whatever that was new, but you don't often have the recorder going, but in something like that where it's at college, and you know you're not uh, you're not on staff there, you're just you're college students, And that who's mm-hmm. going to take care of all this stuff <laughs> like <Yeah>. the, <laughs> the, the the hours and hours
2: and Forrest knows this, and I, we haven't really talked about this on the air, I don't think, but like I'm wanting to assemble a team of volunteers. At various experience levels, but like, you know, inexperienced people at the bottom, no offense to them, that are going through the first review of media and then they red flag things and they move up the chain until you get to this point like a media review team and we've actually kind of started the structure for this, but like, you know, you have to manage it mm-hmm. like on Slack or something and like have people. And then there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of hard drives yeah. and all that. So it's <laughs> like, cause our friend, uh, James Willis done these investigations. He was talking about, Oh, I want to send you guys, you know, but it's just like 20 hours of stuff, yeah. yeah, some video, some audio, whatever, even our own stuff. I don't know, Forrest is pretty good about it, but I think there's some of our own stuff that we haven't even listened to.
1: Uh, Speaking of stuff, though, we're going to talk about one of the, I guess it's probably one of the more famous haunted locations in Irondale, Alabama, and probably close to the university there.
0: Yeah, it's about uh, 20 miles west. Reading
1: through the story, it's like, I liked your email here because it is from the perspective of somebody who had been a lot of ghost hunts and somebody who knows what to expect as far as a phenomena with a healthy skeptical eye to it. But some strange things happen that are unexplainable and and they're a bit dramatic. And then you wonder, uh, was there any media captured of the experiences there? And again, did it just go into the void?
0: Yeah, um, so we had what we found the recording on. It was done on just like a little like, you know, $30 Sony handheld recorder. And it was, you know, one that we plug into the computer Um, We'd record it into Audacity and then we would go in and filter out anything that was our voices or anything that was any external noise. So anything that was left with either static or Mm -hmm. something that was underneath the layer of our voice. Unfortunately, all of those files, like everything, pretty much got lost. Um, yeah. I, so, no, yeah. I get it. Yeah, don't, don't feel bad. It's
2: been going on yeah. ever since there was files, basically. Yeah. Right. Um,
0: and I had even checked before to see if in like my old college email, like uh, Outlook, if it was there, all yeah. of that has been deleted since I got left. I guess the university just clears everything, which yep. is probably where it would have been.
2: The other thing that we know is that it's not really deleted. Because nothing ever exactly. is. But by the same token, <laughs> you can't get to it. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it, in some, well.
0: some server somewhere in the middle of nowhere.
2: <laughs> let's get to your story. We, let's share it with our listeners. I, I know they're anxious to hear it.
0: This story um, takes place pretty early on in the timeline of having the Ghost Hunting Club. Which at the time was actually called Blip, that B L I P P, and it stood mm. for Birmingham League of Investigators of Paranormal Phenomenon, and we just realized that was too long, um, <laughs> and so yeah. we shortened it down to PRS, which was Paranormal Research Society. Nice. So this was you know very early on the cemetery that this takes place in, um, Bass Cemetery. If you look it up online, you'll see a lot of different ghost stories. Obviously, some are legends, some are true. Some people will talk about people doing satanic rituals in the cemetery, a lot of legend, especially in the area. You know, every small town has that place that has a haunting and a legend, and that's kind of the place for Irondale. Mm. So we had been here maybe two or three times before this happened. This was kind of the place that we would take a lot of people when they joined the group because it would always gave something. You would always get some type of experience, whether it be someone was touched, hearing a disembodied voice, seeing something off in the distance move. It was just that kind of place that every time you went, something would happen. And then this night was kind of the one where everything happened. To kind of, you know, set the story, the cemetery is closed off by a gate. Uh, We had access and permission to go in. So we go through the gate and immediately once you go through, you start seeing a lot of destroyed gravestones and mausoleums. So there were, like I think, two or three mausoleums here at one point. And in the mid-2000s to early 2010s, a lot of them were destroyed. And the pieces are all spread out through the cemetery. So a broken gravestone in the cemetery is not uncommon. Right, right. So... This particular gravestone was underneath a tree kind of in the middle of the cemetery. Um, We called it the Bass Tree because one of the graves under it was a person by the last name of Bass, which the cemetery was named after. And so this kind of was a central meeting place because our group, it sometimes was anywhere between 10 and 20 people. And so we would spread out through the cemetery. And It wasn't a very large cemetery, but it was enough to where if two people were at one end and two people were at the other, they wouldn't see or hear each other, especially at night. And so we would kind of meet in this area and do a lot of our group EVP sessions. We would get EMF readings and stuff like that. So at this point we had been here for probably 45 minutes to an hour. Kind of our process anytime we went anywhere was to go take baseline readings of EMF temperatures even using EVPs just to see if we got anything when we first got there. Because something that we noticed was as soon as you came into a place, it was almost like you had stirred up the energy, stirred up everything there and nothing wanted anything to do with you until it got used to you being there. Um, and that kind of tended to be the case with everywhere we went. So interesting. we had been there, like I said, for about an hour or so. And we go to this tree and we start asking what is your name? Why are you here? And a lot of the stuff we would ask would be, you know, make a noise if blank, because, you know, maybe the spirit or the energy can't communicate verbally, but it could make something, you know, move or make a noise or something like that. So this tree in particular, the bass tree, we would call it, like I said, it was known for being one of the most haunted places in the cemetery. People would get pictures of the tree and it would look like bodies were hanging from the tree or just streaks hanging from the tree. It was speculated this was used for lynchings and hangings during the Civil War because some of the oldest graves in the cemetery are from the Civil War. And there was a lot of Confederate and Union camping around this area during the war, uh, as well as it being right beside a railroad track, which will play into the story later. So as we're standing around this tree, We started asking various questions and we weren't really getting anything that we could hear until we asked the question, if you want us to leave, make a noise. And for about five seconds, it was dead silent. And then we heard what I can only explain as a train derailing and colliding with another train. It was one of the loudest things I've ever heard in my life, but there were no trains on the track. You couldn't hear a train, you couldn't see a train, and the track was very visible from where we were standing. And there was nothing on the tracks. The next day, we actually contacted them, asked, you know, were there any train collisions or anything last night? They said the tracks were actually closed off in that area and there was no maintenance or anything going off in that area. So nothing should have been on that track. And the noise was so loud that literally people fell to the ground and we're screaming because it was terrifying because we just asked if you want us to leave, make a noise. And two, just because it was so loud. Mm. However, we did not abide by that. And we stayed (laughs) for probably (laughs) another hour to two hours.
1: Can you describe the type of noise? Was it more, as you said, it was, uh, was it metallic?
0: Yeah. You could hear like the reverberation, like when, you know, if you hit something metal, it's going to reverberate. But, at the same time, it sounded like a large object hit something metallic. So mm. it wasn't just like someone banged on the side of a metal building or something like that.
1: Right. Or, or a gunshot or anything like yeah. that. It was, not, it was less explosion and more crash.
0: Yes, for sure. For sure. Wow. So yeah, after that is kind of when the uh, more physical things started this night. So we had um, someone that was pretty new to the group and... They were off with one of our separate groups that I wasn't with, and this was kind of in an area that was in the very back corner, and a lot of people had described dark feelings, feelings of dread, seeing things out there, which, I mean, it was at the back of the cemetery next to an open area of the gate the cemetery was gated but this area was open so you know obviously it's going to have some weird feelings just being back there especially if you're by yourself so we didn't really think anything much of that being something people described but all of a sudden we kind of heard someone scream and we ran over to that area and he had a full handprint on the left side of his face like a red handprint as if someone had slapped him And everyone else in the group that was over there with him, I definitely trusted. And they said, you know, we saw him. He did not slap himself. No one here slapped him. It was a very, very terrifying situation. And at that point, we did leave. Because, you know, obviously, they told us to leave. We didn't. And something happened. So we don't want to risk anything worse happening. So at that point, we did leave. You know, everyone got a good night's rest. And the next day, we would... Um, pretty much after any investigation the next day we would spend all of our free time going through our evidence and everything like that mm-hmm. and when we went through our evidence at that point just listening back to the EVP without cutting out the audio we couldn't really hear much except I heard something that sounded like someone saying hello so I was like okay that's kind of weird so once we go in we cut everything out then it became very clearly that it was someone saying the name Ednea Colo which was very weird because that's not a very common name, um, especially for, you know, at the time in 2015, both the first and the last name are not very common at all. So we would always go when we were working in a cemetery, if we thought there was someone, you know, infamous, or someone says there's a ghost of some specific person there, we would go on, find a grave, look up, see if their grave was actually there and see where it was. So we go on there and... To this day, there's only two names on there with the last name Kolo for Bass Cemetery. There's a John Kolo and then there is a person with the last name Kolo but the first name is not on there. And it does say wife of John Kolo.
1: The name would be Ednia, so it's capital E-D-N-I-A, last name Kolo K-I-L-L-O-U-G-H. Yeah. Just so people can now picture uh, the, the name of the spelling, because that is important when you go to look this up and you can't really find anything, yeah. but eventually you do.
0: Yeah. We saw on there that there was a last name, Kolo but no first name, but it said it was wife of John Kolo And we went back probably a week or two later because we did, like I say, go to the cemetery mm-hmm. a lot just because it was close and we always got evidence. And we found the grave right underneath where we were standing of John Kolo And then there was a broken headstone next to it and the broken headstone had the last name Calo, and it said wife of John Calo on the headstone, Um, but we did not find a first name. And it was not until later on that we were for sure that this was Ednia. Um, We always kind of assumed that it was because, you know, that said the name, the name was there as the last name, it said wife. And um, very recently I saw that at some point, um, I actually thought that this was after the investigation, but actually I was looking the date. Turns out this was before, and it, I guess it was knocked down again. Someone repaired the headstone, seemingly using some type of plaster to fill in the name Ednia. But then, I believe that was in 2013, so this was actually, like I said, before we investigated there, and the headstone was destroyed again. So... I'm not sure why that particular headstone was destroyed multiple times. I don't know if it was because it was repaired, maybe a storm blew it over again and destroyed it or something like that. But as far as I know, to this day, the headstone is most likely still destroyed. The cemetery is the last time, at least the last time I went by there to actually show my girlfriend, which was a few, maybe a year ago or so. It was completely gated off, locked, no way to get in. So. I didn't want to trespass and hop over the gate or anything like that. But yeah, it was very interesting that if you go on Find a Grave, there is only one name that is missing, and it is Ednia Colos' first name. And it kind of just made me think, was she saying her name so that people would know it? You know, was it something else disguising itself as her? Right. Was she the one that made the train noise? Because people had often described a female presence there as well as a male presence And that was something that we definitely felt as well. Even before this, we felt that there was someone that was a male presence that was seemingly a little bit more in control and demanding. And then there was a female presence. So if I had to take my educated guess, I would say that whatever male presence it was is what slapped him. And Mm -hmm. potentially that was what told us to leave. But, you know, it might have been Ednia or was it something completely else that was disguising itself as her?
2: I'm seeing, uh, as you said, on Ancestry, such a great tool, by the way, yeah. I, and I went to the find a grave link you sent. I'm also seeing her on an 1880 census Yeah. where she, what, in, in uh, I guess she was 68 years old. She lived in Jefferson, which is a couple of hours yeah. from Irondale, where she was buried. But on the census, notably, it just says her and John in the house. He was 69. She was 68 at the time. It just says occupation,
1: quote, keeping house. The interesting fact starting off is that the activity is pretty low until people or whatever's there gets used to you a bit. Yeah. It's like going to a party, right? It's like you, you exactly. burst through the door. You're not just immediately doing magic tricks and telling jokes. You talk to people for a while, you get to know them. And then the party kind of, uh, livens up from there. But you'd also mentioned in your email that people often have a sense of somebody running past them. Uh, and sometimes yes. it was female. And, of course, this this is what's funny early on. I think I mentioned this in in another story, and and, uh, we got a few uh, critical emails of just saying, like, that's ridiculous. You know, Forrest is saying, like, something was female. It's not – for one, it doesn't exist. It's not there. It's all baloney. But how could you even tell if something is – you could tell the sex of something, a male or female, Again, I haven't, but I noticed a lot of people have where they just they just know it just seemed like that. Yeah. What about these intense feelings of dread in certain areas, and then and then these presences running by? What mm-hmm. was happening with that?
0: I actually do have an experience with the um, spirit running by. So um, myself and one of my co-investigators, we were walking kind of on the backside, actually kind of near where the slap happened. And we both kind of heard footsteps behind us, running towards us. And then we were kind of standing, you know, side by side, but maybe a foot and a half to two feet apart. And we both at the same time felt a gust of wind come between us that made us move away. And it was only felt, you know, in between us, not on the other sides of our bodies, not on our backs, just Mm -hmm. directly as if something was running between us. And the kind of weird thing with that was, for me, it felt like, something brushed against my leg as like a dress would feel now, obviously Mm. that could just be the wind as well, but it was, you know, just very interesting that I heard someone running, felt that, and then it felt like a dress passed by my leg. So I think that you know, that for me is kind of what made that particular spirit feel feminine, but Mm. I kind of, I feel like with most people, at least people that I've experienced talk about something feeling feminine, it tends to feel more, I guess less of a demanding presence and something that feels more trapped, which, you know, obviously doesn't mean particularly that it's female. But right. I think that it just becomes an association with people thinking of, you know, oh, this is a female being reprimanded or underneath some type of demanding male spirit or something.
1: Right, right. Those yeah. relationships back then where you have a more domineering patriarchal uh, presence – why wouldn't that carry over into whatever trapped spirits are there now? And, and also somebody who could have been abusive and he's, uh, so here's the question, the guy that got slapped, I'm sure you got photos of that at the time. And then how long were the the handprints there?
0: That's the really interesting thing is that it was not there long. Hmm. It was probably at most three minutes, which I feel like, you know, if you, if I, you know, slap myself in the face, yeah, the mark is going to stay there longer, <laughs> or there right. might be bruising, or you know, residual pain. But right, you know, after like three minutes, it went away. There was no bruising. He wasn't in pain after that. It was just there, and then it was gone. Which is something else that I've noticed in a lot of other people's stories is it's there for you know two minutes and then it's gone. Even when it sometimes was scratches or something like that they go away very quickly.
2: In Birmingham, are you familiar with Kelo Springs?
0: No, actually.
2: Okay, so just while we were talking, I was looking this up and found some interesting stuff, which isn't necessarily connected to anything that you cross paths with other than in a familial or uh, genetic or ancestral way. Kelo Springs apparently is a subdivision in the eastern section of Birmingham, which was built on the original Kelo plantation.
0: Interesting
2: here's what's interesting about that. The Kalloe plantation was built by a couple of twin brothers, James and Isaac, who eventually moved to Texas from there. They, and they had moved there from, uh, it looks like from South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, and then to Alabama. And they went to Texas and uh, with some land that had been, I guess, given to them or deeded to them or something, I don't have all the details because I'm looking this up on the fly here, But the land that was supposedly given to them was hotly disputed in terms of its ownership by Cherokee Indians. And there was a massacre known as, and it has its own Wikipedia page, the Kalloe Massacre. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Believed to have been the largest and last Native American attack on white settlers in East Texas. Took place October 5th. That would be the anniversary of that would be tomorrow, as we're recording. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Near Larissa, Texas in 1838. 18 victims, including Isaac Collo's senior and his extended family, who had immigrated to the Republic of Texas from Talladega County in 1837. So I wonder if uh, Ednia's husband was—I mean, he must have been related to this family in some way. Obviously, stayed behind, which would have been apparently the right decision for him. Yeah. But you know, it's that's interesting that there's you know, you just start looking around and you start finding these, (laughs) you know, this history. It's I, I love that kind of stuff.
1: When stuff happened. Again, this is the other thing. It's not only that there were other witnesses to the phenomenon or the sensations that were happening to confirm. It's like, it's not just you. But the other, I think it's also a weird thing when only certain people feel something and others don't. Was there a yeah. time there in your investigation where with a loud sound that might have been stranger if two people there, it was kind of like our Phantom Horse of Greensboro story. It's like one person didn't see anything at all. But when that loud crash went off, you all heard it, right? All at once at the yes. same time. Yeah, Was there any other instance, though, where something happened and maybe only a couple people nearby experienced it, but nobody nobody else did?
0: Uh, there were definitely a few times. One particular that comes to mind is when we were in um, South Pittsburgh Hospital in um, South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, mm-hmm. there was a... And I say this as someone that does not believe in 99.9% of orbs that have ever been photographed or talked about. (laughs) That's you Um, and Scott, yeah. Yeah, We um, we had our camera rolling. It didn't catch this. Two of the other people didn't catch this, but me and one of my friends caught this, that there was a sphere of light, probably six to seven inches in diameter, that was just in front of us. And it would move as we moved. It was like we were following unintentionally or it was leading us somewhere unintentionally. And then eventually it just disappeared. And only the two of us saw it.
2: Wow. Okay. But that's still two. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. better than <laughs> one. Better than one. Because that's the thing yeah. I was going to ask about the train's crash sound. Did certain people hear it and certain didn't or everyone heard it? And then it's a different if it's one, because we, you know, and you've, you've listened to our show, you've heard us debate whether or not those sounds are happening out in the wild or they're happening in your head. Like you don't have a recording of that sound, right? Nothing was recording when that happened. No. The crashing sound. Right. So... You have to wonder if somebody was watching that didn't hear it, if they just saw a bunch of idiots all falling on the ground, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like that feels like you wonder, is it out there is, you know, if a ghost train crashes in the woods and no one's around, will anyone hear it? Exactly. You know,
1: I was going to say it's, if there's no external stimuli causing that, then it's a very, very strange case of multiple simultaneous exploding head syndrome with a group of people (laughs) that aren't, that aren't going to sleep or, you know, it's not hypnagogic or, It's very odd. And like I said, it's, you know, we can tell these, uh, you can tell these stories and we can elaborate and people will say, well, that was pretty weird. But it is one of those things a lot of the times where it would be so much more if you were there experiencing that. Mm -hmm. Like I said, that's got to be a lot of energy. Most of the time you don't hear about something that loud or a slap that forceful it's usually it's pretty light i've heard of people you know grayfriers where you'll feel a little somebody kind of grab you lightly and there'll be some yeah. fingerprints but a full on slap like that that takes a little bit more energy than usual and like i said that's a pretty good fishing hole if you're getting stuff all the time but exactly yeah that sense with the with the crash of that being that loud and every people's ears were ringing right
0: yeah i mean wow. like i said it was very metallic so it's like you know it was uh, you know as someone that has tinnitus it made oh. my ears ring, and so, you know, it's very alarming to me that it was not, you know, just something that.
2: Right. Well, that would suggest that it would that it was a real sound, then if yeah, it triggered it, exactly. because I have that too, by the way, and it's yeah. I don't have it, thank God, constantly like some people do. Yeah, I don't know. I if don't you either. Do. For me, it is specifically triggered by a certain frequency and pitch. Yeah. It's so funny. My wife used to perform improv with the Groundlings Theater in L.A., and there was one person, and who I am not going to name, who performed <laughs> with her who is a famous oh, no. television personality now, oh, whenever dear. she came out and was doing a bit where she started screaming, I literally had to close my ears. Cause it was like, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is someone who personally has experienced that, that sound must've been in the wild if it triggered that. Cause that's a physical reaction. That's not an in your head reaction. That's a physical reaction.
0: Yeah. And that also kind of segues into another interesting thing that I'm not sure if you've ever experienced, you know, having tinnitus, but obviously it is, you know, set on by certain frequencies I have a weird thing whenever I go to somewhere that is typically deemed haunted that I start having very bad tinnitus and really only in very particular places, um, such as in Savannah, Georgia at the Sorrell weed house. I'm not sure if you guys have ever heard of that.
1: I've heard the name. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a very haunted house in Savannah. One of the times that I went there, I had a severe attack of tinnitus, um, while I was in the house. And it kind of happens in certain places and it happens in, you know, obviously in normal day life too, but very particularly when I go to somewhere that's been, you know, said to have been haunted.
2: Yeah. In that case, when it happens to you, you're probably more inclined to believe that it's yeah. haunting because you have, it's like a standard thing for you to personally to expect.
1: Exactly. Y'all went back to Bass at some point, right? You went back. That wasn't the last time you, uh, I guess, not no, heeding no. the warning <laughs> to, to, to leave there. Did you ever yeah. encounter Ednia again or anything that, uh, I guess, put, let me put it this way. Had you ever encountered something that you believe in all your visits there was a recurring presence or, or feeling that like somebody kind of got to know you there and maybe the next time you showed up also wanted to visit?
0: No, I think uh, kind of every time we went, it was always something different, but... Mm -hmm. I will say it tended to be more attached to the females in our group if it was, say, just like a tug or, um, you know, someone touching you. And then we had one instance where one of our um, investigators, her name was Katie, and we heard something once we went and cut out all of our audio that said the name Katie. Now, obviously, that might have been someone in the distance saying her name that wasn't picked up when we cut it through as someone standing nearby But that was just kind of an interesting thing that happened that we Mm -hmm. never thought too much of it because we could kind of rule that out as potentially someone else, but also potentially not at the same time.
2: You know, the other thing that's interesting about that is it reminds me of EVP stories that we've heard, and you may have heard us talk about them on the show, where people have gone back through the media and heard a voice that was a member of the party that was there, but was not in the room where the EVP was picked up.
0: Yeah, I've never had that happen, but I've definitely heard a lot of people that I've talked to that were in... Uh, different paranormal groups, talk about that before.
1: You're fortunate to have uh, covered the grounds of uh, not only Alabama, but Tennessee and a lot of different places. Uh, is there any other anecdotes that you'd like to share or just an overall feeling after all, you know, a- after a hundred investigations? Is there anything that you would like to comment on, like just about the experience or or anything in particular?
0: Yeah, I think kind of the only thing um, that I would say is just, you know, in general, what I've kind of come to conclude to myself is, you know, there are truly, you know, multiple types of hauntings, like, you know, something that's a residual haunting, like something way I explain it is the woman looking out the window waiting for her husband to come back. You know, that to me is just an imprint of energy that's been there because by the laws of energy, it cannot be created or destroyed. And if someone is in one particular area for so long, you know, it's going to leave some type of imprint. Mm. And then obviously there are You know, poltergeist situations like the Black Monk is a very favorite of mine because it's a very interesting like what was actually happening there. You know, there's a wide variety of things you could you know say that was what was happening there. um, And it doesn't really fit with the majority of even poltergeist cases. I've kind of just learned that there's a lot of different things that are paranormal, whether it be ghosts, cryptids skinwalker ranch stuff there's so many different things but is it all the same thing or is it a wide variety of things that we just simply don't understand from a scientific standpoint
2: ah oh, i think you, you should come <laughs> well, be a guest host man.
1: yeah we'll we'll
0: go out in the field and you can like you can your stay
2: back
1: here at the mic and, and <laughs> yeah and direct <laughs> yeah <laughs> well
2: we want to thank you so much for coming on the show is if there's anything that you'd like to point the listeners to, whether it's your pending podcast or anything else, please feel free to plug away right now if there's any place you want to point people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have mm-hmm.
0: anything to you know point towards yet because the podcast right. isn't up and running yet. Do you still ghost hunt? Yeah, so I haven't done like a full ghost hunt in a, uh, probably three years. Okay. Um, I've done a lot of ghost tours in different cities and stuff like that, but I definitely, if I get the right group of people... Which to me is kind of the hard thing is finding a group of people that's not going to go out and you know just be blatantly screaming and you know just believing everything that they see is a ghost. So you know it's kind of about finding a group of like-minded people that are going to approach it from a scientific standpoint.
2: Well, folks, that's going to conclude the first three stories of this series. Thanks very much to Jeff, Molly, and Austin for joining us. Come back next week as we all fall even further. Into the void. That's going to wrap up part one of your true Halloween stories. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Drawer, which most of the time we do live on video for our
1: patrons. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vacola, or as we call him, The Mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Boland.
0: Hi, I'm Paul Strauch. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Strauch. I'm Paul Strauch. I'm Paul Strauch. I'm Paul Strauch. Hold on. Paul Strauch.
2: Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at
1: FounderMusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its
2: corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request, to AstonishingContact at gmail.com.
1: Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube.
2: You can also visit us at Patreon.com AstonishingLegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions.
3: Good night.